It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams, and up with the truth, where man is Jerry find it. And it's still November the 25th, 2015. Earlier to this day, we, today, we had, uh, oh, I had, uh, Jaron, Jaronism, and uh, Globusters, both can be find, uh, found on Yahoo. Not Yahoo, my brain's not working right now. YouTube. <laughs> Anyways. So we're going to get back to this uh, uh, memory of David McGowan. Um, uh, God blessed me with the opportunity of... Uh, looks like doing uh, Dave's very last interview before he passed away. If not, one of them. And it was pretty cool because uh, Keith Hansen, a.k.a. Physigoth, was part of it. And uh, they have a long history together. So, so I'll be reading some more out of uh, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And before that, though, <clears throat> we'll be reading a couple more things. One we'll be reading uh, from uh, Dave's Web, dot cn. Cehost.com, uh, the Center for an Informed America, is Dave's website. Uh, uh, Gordon Comstock emailed me today and reminded me that we had a conversation that uh, when this time came, that uh, when the time arrived for the inevitable, which was the passing of uh, uh, our friend and uh, David, that uh, we would uh, read bits and pieces out of the weird scenes inside the canyon, not necessarily the whole entire book, only because it's still in, uh, in print and there's still opportunities for people to buy it. <clears throat> and because um, we don't want to get people up, we want to give people the opportunity to read it for themselves. So, um, and there's plenty of things to read from Dave. But before we get into that, we'll look at uh, Yahoo.com. Let's look at the headlines. And since tomorrow is Thanksgiving, I thought this might be kind of fun, in particular because of myself um, and the weird experiences that I had last night with the moon. And I can only tell you that um, what I saw is what I saw. I saw clouds behind the moon. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. That's an optical illusion. Yeah. I do know it was like around 6, 6.30 p.m. is when, it, when I noticed it. Now, as I pay attention to the rest of the night, I noticed that uh, 
that wasn't the case. But then again, there wasn't a lot of clouds. Now, there's a lot of fake clouds tonight, thanks to all the spraying of coal ash on the world. Well, I can tell you one thing, you know, when it comes to this uh, geoengineering that's going on, and this is from my own personal experience of, with uh, environmental management and uh, industrial processes, how to reclaim, how to reuse uh, industrial waste and make a profit out of it. It makes all the sense to me that what they are spraying is coal ash. It's a byproduct from obviously uh, coal burning power plants and um, something to do with it. And they've been talking for years and years about scrubbers and how to deal with that coal ash and what to do with it and uh, the costs of disposal and all that. And it's clear that in the past decade, they figured out a way, at least the past decade, they figured out a way in how to uh, implement it in uh, the geoengineering. So when you see all the aluminum and bromium and strontium and all the other stuff, you'll find all that is in coal ash. So <laughs> that's what they're doing. Global dimming, the whole idea of global dimming and... Uh, by uh, actually putting more of this product in the air along with CO2 that actually does the complete opposite than what they're selling you. Um, well, let me rephrase that. They are, it's doing exactly what they wanted to do, which is to actually try to warm the planet. And uh, because it actually is beneficial for everybody to have more CO2 and and to warm the planet. <laughs> oh, but you got to watch out for the uh, Antarctica. Yeah, that's all melting away. Yeah, sure it is. And the North Pole. I know, finally, I find it very interesting. Uh, I've been looking into uh, pictures, images of North Pole and the Antarctica and um, trying to find some real photos um, from uh, <clears throat> some of the high-flying planes out there that they use to mimic uh, satellites, and uh, I can't find it. There's nothing. It's all fake, CGI fake stuff, or it's all smudged and blurred out. It tells you something. They're hiding something on both ends. <clears throat> Whether you believe in a round Earth or not, that really makes a difference. But anyways, this thing is uh, uh, called, What is a Morning moon and why should or why you should care about tonight's full moon on the eve of thanksgiving pagans will celebrate a traditional and lesser known occasion known as the morning moon and that's m-o-u-r-n-i-n-g moon uh, moonrise on wednesday which comes on the heels of september of the September's blood moon and a super moon in October um, will begin at 5.44 p.m. Eastern. Is, to la is the last time the moon is full before the winter solstice. And we know that there are religions that we actually at least the religious part of it, the man-made part of it, the uh, part that people all recognize of Christianity is based 
was it is heavily influenced and blended with paganism. This is just the way it is. So, of course, this would be being shared to us by Yahoo. A couple of Jesuit trained Roman Catholics, uh, five nights of Malta. Although I shouldn't say that, the probably part, but uh, odds are sharing paganism with us. Interesting, uh, Dave, he was a Roman Catholic. And uh, I think it's we'll, be, we'll be talking, I think, a little bit about that. He was raised that in, in that religion, just as uh, Sharon was. And, uh, you know, many of us who are raised in these these man-made pagan her, heretical churches, really cults, it's, many of us never find God because of it. We lose it. Not the true living God. So, In the pagan religion, the morning moon marks a time of cleansing. The complete opposite of what the Israelis, the Jews of the Old Testament in their lunar solar calendar, where the attention was on different phases of the moon, per se. I don't know. If we look at it, I think it was last Wednesday... The Wednesday before was the beginning of their calendar with the crescent moon. And um, so I guess today would also be considered, based on the calendar, if I got my, and don't quote me on this, but if I got my, well, I can always look, I haven't bothered to look, but if, uh, if you look, you probably see that. Uh, Today is supposed to be another Sabbath, according to the, the Old Testament. And if the, with the Gregorian calendar, they change the times and seasons and etc. So we no longer know how to actually keep the Sabbath. <laughs> Nobody does. And everybody claims they do. They're just not really telling you the whole truth, or they don't know the whole truth themselves. So. Anyways, in the pagan religion, the morning moon marks a time of cleansing according to about and with it, about, I guess, is some kind of, what is about? It's all highlighted. About religion. Okay. The morning moon. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting moon. It's very interesting how bright and brilliant it is, along with the the chemtrails. <laughs> it looks really ominous and eerie looking. Um, alternatively, uh, called the fog moon or snow moon, depending on the region, the type of rituals practiced on Wednesday are meant to rid a person of bad habits. Or do they take them in? Kill them in the sacrifice, therefore I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, a per Refinery29, this is obviously another uh, online website, uh, news site, I guess, Refinery29. In the pagan tradition, autumn is a time to physically and mentally prepare 
for winter. And, yeah, my neck of the woods is long. And these past couple winters has really been long. Then messing with the weather and all that. This takes forever. We'll wait till March for any kind of reprieve. Actually, the weather, northwest Ohio, pretty much sucks. It really does. Uh, I think um, that Seattle is a, we're like second or something. We're in the top five or ten cities in the nation of for overcast days. Yeah, got to take a lot of vitamin D in my neck of the woods <laughs> for the next six months. Uh, for here goes for pagans. Last phase of preparation in anticipation of colder months involving letting go of old things, habits, and people. <laughs> there you go. And how did they do it back then? Well, they just burned them. <laughs> and the rituals are largely symbolic, yet are thought to help pagans embrace a new year unencumbered by attachment of negative, negativity or grief. So I had to give away when uh, we're just going there. We've got plenty of time to read all this stuff and kill time. and We'll get to the About article. <clears throat> Not really too interested in the blood moons. Um, let's see if it says about the same thing. Uh, in November, the morning moon is is upon us. It's also known as the fog moon or snow moon, depending on where you live. Some Native American tribes refer it to simply as the moon when deer shed antlers. <laughs> Although in most regions it is more accurate to say they are shedding their velvet. A buck doesn't usually lose antlers until later in the winter. <laughs> Unless you are, are very far north. <laughs> in the early Celtic societies, November was the beginning of the new year. Why not use the magic of this moon face to celebrate the new beginning? Uh, correspondence, color, uh, colors, gray, blue, gemstones, Turquoise, topaz, lapis, lazuli, uh, tree, cypress, saddler, hazel, god, bastet, isis, of course, kaili. That's why it's there, isis. Isorset, our society is based on the worship of that. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and that's what we why they have. Uh, well, Cyrus's penis, and uh, or not the reflecting pond in uh, Washington D.C. So, yeah, we'll get out of there. So that's what's going on. So I give you something to be thankful about, I guess. But there's got to be there was a a morning moon. Anyways, this is once again from Dave McGowan. He uh, found in the center of uh, Center for an Informed America. I know that. Uh, Gordo, he said he'd like this. I haven't heard him for a while because he's, he's busy and having some challenges. seems like a lot of us who are doing this have a lot of challenges. When you pursue the truth, uh, it doesn't quite fit in with the plans of this world, does it? <clears throat> There's no great reward worldly for it. So, I see everybody I talk to has these 
immense challenges, so, including myself. But it's the price you pay, and we do live in a world where Satan rules is the prince of it, and there's a lot to do his bidding, and uh, we blindly and ignorantly go along with it, so what can you do about it? Anyways, Cheney's got a gun. I realize that this story is now old news, because when Vice President of the United States shot or shoots someone in the face from close range with a shotgun, it's only newsworthy for a day, for days at best. <laughs> Even so, I didn't want to be the only irresponsible journalist and the country to fail to weigh in on this non-story. <laughs> and how true that is. Yeah. Happens all the time. Somebody gets shot in the face by the vice president and nothing ever happens. While I have never hunted live prey, I have, on one occasion, many, many years ago, tried my hand at skeet shooting, which is similar to quail and peasant, or peasant, yeah, it is peasant hunting, peasant hunting, but with inanimate uh, targets. As best I can remember, I managed to make it through that day without shooting anyone, anyone in the face and without actually breaking any clay targets. The latter may have been at least partly due to the fact that I was barely as tall as the gun was long. The photo below, by the way, was snapped just in, um, in split seconds before the gun's recoil landed me squarely on my ass. listening howls of laughter from various family members. And yes, in case you wonder, you're wondering, that that is what all the cool kids were wearing that year. So I'll tell you what, I'll put this article in the chat room in case anybody wants to read it and it shows up. Cherry one and... Uh, uh, Air, Errol C. You can read along with me and see the pictures of what Dave McGowan looked like to his kid as he's trying his best to skeet shoot. Looks like something. Yeah, it looks like something from the late 60s, early 70s. Man. Since, <clears throat> we'll go along with this. Since I am not much for a for a quail hunter myself, I decided to consult with some seasoned hunters to determine if a quail was in fact a bird, and if that was the case, if said birds weren't normally shot while in flight. They quickly confirmed my suspicions. The normal procedure, according to my resident experts, is to flush out the prey, then shoot at the elusive birds as they attempt to fly away. This will be important later on 
and our tail. <laughs> yeah, it will be. But first, let's have a look at the official story of Cheney, quote, hunting accident, end of quote. Uh, if you guys remember that, but uh, they, re- they talked about it briefly and brushed it, up and brushed it under the rug. Apparently, the ruling elite, the thing's not much different in America than in Europe. Uh, if you like shooting something in the face, they get away with it. If you did that, you'd be in jail for two life sentences, right? But I mean, uh, they look at him a few extra million dollars and make the, the guy who, who actually got shot in the face apologize for it. <laughs> oh, God bless America. That story, which at first placed the blame for the shooting squarely on the victim because this administration is, lest we forget, of course, this is written in, 19, this is in 2006, he's talking about Bush's administration. Uh, lest we forget all about personal responsibility, holds that Harry Whittington came up behind Cheney unannounced and that Cheney then turned to take a shot at a fleeing bird and, as we all now know, blasted Whittington's in the face and chest, causing an, an injury that, according to the White House and various media talking heads, is roughly equivalent to, to stubbing one's toe. <laughs> Now, no one is suggesting that Cheney did anything wrong here or that this was anything other than an obviously accidental shooting. At least no one in in the media is suggesting any such thing, even though no one in law enforcement or the media has bothered to conduct any sort of real investigation to verify the official version of the events. And even though the official story is laced with very um, obvious lies and inconsistencies, it is a foregone conclusion in this case that taking such rudimentary steps as visiting the scene of the shooting, examining and testing the firearms used, and questioning witnesses, including the shooter and the victim, as soon as possible after the incident occurred, would just be a waste of everyone's time. In this country, in case you haven't heard, we are all about, quote, the rule of law, end of quote. And the rule of law clearly states in Article 7, Paragraph 12, quote, no investigation shall be necessary when a man occupying one of the highest elected offices in the land shoots another man in the face with a shotgun under questionable circumstances, but at lengthy and costly investigation followed by articles of impeachment shall be mandated if someone occupying such an office receives a blowjob from an intern. Though other far more serious crimes committed by said blowjob recipient shall be ignored. 
end of quote. Paragraph 14 goes on to say that, quote, anyone suggesting that an investigation is in order shall receive a public flogging. If such suggestions persist, repeat offenders shall, under provisions of the U.S. Patriot Act, be subject to immediate arrest and imprisonment as suspected terrorists, end quote. Though not readily acknowledged, the rule of law also states the following, Article 9, Paragraph 7, quote, those dedicated public officials engaged in the noble pursuit of drafting and passing laws to regulate the behavior of the masses shall at all times be held above the law, while mere mortals shall be subject to warrantless searches, illegal surveillance, indefinite detentions without access to legal counsel, extrajudicial torture, and at times such as when attempting to deboard a plane (laughs) in the state of Florida, summary execution. So clearly Mr. Cheney was in no way criminally negligent in shooting Mr. Whittington, regardless of the circumstances. If it had been a commoner doing the shooting, then things would be different. When my brother was shot in the face, for example, and yes, this is a true story, the working assumption among law enforcement officials was that a crime had been committed. Upon my brother's admission to the emergency room of the local hospital, the police were immediately contacted as standard operating procedures dictated. Said officers arrived promptly to question the the victim and then subsequently detained and questioned the shooter. No charges were ultimately filed in the case since it was in fact clearly an accidental shooting, but it was investigated as a potential crime despite the fact that both the shooter and the victim were minors. The weapon involved was a pellet slash BB gun, a real BB gun that is as opposed to a shotgun disingenuously described as a BB gun. (laughs) The wound was superficial and the incident took place some 30 years ago when the laws of the land were decidedly less draconian than they are today. Living in America. The reality is that all gunshot wounds not inflicted by the Vice President of the United States are, as a general rule of thumb, treated as potential crimes until proven otherwise. But as previously mentioned, the rule of law dictates that the complete, that completely different rules apply here. Even so, it might be instructive to conduct a sort of citizen's investigation of the shooting or at least of the official, apparently hastily constructed story of the shooting. The first thing that we could conclude is that 
all the key sources of information on the shooting are lying their asses off. For example, the owner of the ranch, Catherine Armstrong, <clears throat> has repeatedly presented herself as an eyewitness to the shooting, despite the fact that her initial statement clearly indicated that she had never seen a thing. Since that fact seems to have slipped down the memory hole, readers are reminded that Armstrong's initially claimed that when she saw Cheney's security personnel rush towards the scene of the crime, quote, the first thing that crossed my mind was he, Cheney, had a heart problem, <laughs> quote, according to her own account. Armstrong was in a vehicle some 100 yards away when the shot was fired. <clears throat> it goes without saying that if Armstrong had in fact witnessed the shooting, she would certainly have known the reason for the emergency response, and hence we can safely conclude that she has misrepresented her status as a witness. Nevertheless, Cheney himself, during his friendly little chat with Britt Humes, what a name, Britt Humes, Britain, because you know what, you and I, we do live in a British colony still, do your homework, you'll find out it to be the case. Yes. Britt Humes of the White House News Network. Why is it named White House? It's named after a Jesuit, Jesuit priest who <clears throat> helped establish Washington, D.C. Well, actually, the Royal Maryland, I believe it is. That's his original name. Repeatedly identified Armstrong as not just an eyewitness, but as the authoritative witness to the incident. On no less than four occasions during the brief interview, Cheney hailed Armstrong up as an unassailable eyewitness. If I don't... If my memory is correct, uh, if, wasn't he drunk as well at the time when this happened? Quote, I thought it might be good sense for Armstrong to put out the story for several reasons. First of all, she was an eyewitness. She'd seen the whole thing, end of quote. Quote, we were confident that Catherine was the right one, especially because she was an eyewitness and she could speak authoritatively on it. She probably knew better than I did what had happened, end of quote. Quote, we had, she's, uh, uh, we had, dash, she's one who put out the statement that she was the most credible one to do it because she was a witness, end of quote. Quote, I think Catherine was an excellent choice. I don't know who you could get better on the basic source for the story, then the witness who saw the whole thing in the quote. This is from the WW White House Gov News release, 2006 print, uh, 2006, it's like February 15th, something like that. 
I got the date right there. It would appear that that when then that the only person other than Cheney who has thus far publicly offered an account of how the shooting took place didn't actually witness an event. That is not to say, however, that Miss Armstrong is not qualified to serve as the administration's spokeswoman for this affair. As Cheney noted, quote, Armstrong's have been friends for over 30 years, end quote, and, quote, Carl Rove has hunted at the Armstrongs as well, and we're both good friends with Armstrong and Catherine Armstrong. And the quote, according to the New York Times, Armstrong is also, quote, a lobbyist for Parsons and an, an engineering and construction firm that has done extensive work in Iraq, end of quote. And Sister Anne E. Cornblut and Ralph uh, Methel quote, end of, end, no end to questions in Cheney's hunting accident, end of quote, New York Times, February 14, 2006. <clears throat> Since Armstrong, by her own initial account, didn't actually witness the shooting, and since she is a longtime friend of both Dick Cheney and Carl Rove, the only logical conclusion that could be reached here is that the story that Armstrong put out is the one that was spoon-fed to her by Cheney and Carl Rove, who Cheney acknowledged quote, did talk to Catherine Armstrong and the court according to the New York Times. These are real brilliant men that lead our country and have enough, don't even have enough sense to shut up. They need to convict themselves on a constant basis. In the end, White House officials say, Mr. Bush learned about the shooting accident at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time about an hour after it happened. And a call from Andrew H. Card Jr., his chief of staff, but Mr. Bush did not find out that Mr. Cheney fired the shot until about half an hour later, in a subsequent, subsequent call from Carl Rhodes, his senior advisor and deputy chief of staff and fellow Satanist, I, put, I added that, who had called Mrs. Armstrong to ask about the incident, and E. Cornblunt and Ralph Blumethel, once again, no end of questions in Cheney's hunting accident, quote, New York Times, February 14, 2006. In other words, by 8 p.m. Eastern Time or 7 p.m. Texas Time, <clears throat> at the very latest, the Bush administration, primary spin doctor and damage control specialist had already been on the phone with Armstrong. That's their professional wire, by the way. Let's just get that straight. This is fascinating that our country is really based on lying. But not just our country. It's, it's like, like 
all governments and all, but we just seem to be better than most when it comes to spinning a tail. At least long enough to get us in trouble. But I even shouldn't even say us. Allowing them to get us in trouble. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> Gathering the information he would never he need he would need to weave the official fable. According to Cheney's account, after tending to <laughs> Whittington and sending him off to the hospital. Can you imagine Cheney attending to you? <laughs> oh my gosh, they'd be like, oh, here comes Satan himself. Oh my, he's going to help me. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> sending him off to the hospital, the hunting party. Loaded up and went back to the ranch headquarters. So basically, by then, it's about 7 p.m. at night. So what we find is that before the hunting party even made it back to the house, Rove was already hard at work writing the official script. Nearly a full day before that script was released to the nation, national media, the script that he ultimately provided to Armstrong was, not surprisingly, filled with the lies, misrepresentations, and blame-shifting that are Carl Rove's trademark. Jesuits trained him well. The severity of Whittington's wounds, for example, was downplayed to the point of absurdity. Armstrong's depiction delivered with a chuckle, <laughs> duping delight, was that Whittington had merely been, quote, peppered pretty good, end quote. Ha, ha, ha. And that, quote, his pride was hurt more than anything else, end quote. <clears throat> Armstrong even went so far as to boldly claim that she had been, quote, peppered pretty well myself, end <laughs> quote, on at least one occasion. <laughs> the implication being that it has a common occupation hazard that all hunters must deal with, quote, from time to time, end quote, just as uh, figure skaters know that they will occasionally make painful contact with uh, an unyielding sheet of ice. Hunters know that they will occasionally be blasted in the face with a shotgun, and it just goes with the territory. Nothing to really be concerned about. Armstrong also lied about Whittington's overall condition in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. Her eyewitnesses, her her eyewitness account, held that Whittington was alert and communicating with Cheney and other tending to him. <clears throat> Quote: I knocked. Him silly, but he was fine. He was talking. His eyes were opened, end quote. But Cheney himself later acknowledged that Whittington was unresponsive and a state of shock and had only one eye open. Of course, you've got to have one eye open, right? 
Arst- oh yeah, the externalization of the hierarchy. Got to start somewhere. Armstrong isn't, by any stretch of the imagination, the only liar this sordid affair. Cheney, as we have already seen, repeatedly lied about Armstrong's status as an eyewitness to the shooting. Curiously enough, he did at least acknowledge his own status as a a known liar. (laughs) Only so that he could then use it to justify his failure to notify the media. Quote, well, who was going to do that, end quote, asked Cheney, in response to the question from Brett Hume, Hume concerning his failure to do so. Are they going to take my word for it? There is, there is obviously, end quote. Since Cheney did not finish that thought, allow me to do it for him. There is obviously a credibility issue here, end quote. Indeed, Cheney seems to be such a pathological liar that he can't even decide how long he has been a hunting enthusiast. He told Buddy Brett, or Brit, like Britain, short for Britain, the Brits, Brit, that he has been a seasoned hunter for the last 12, 15 years. Then later, in the very same interview, claimed that hunting is part of his heritage growing up in Wyoming. It's part of who I am, end quote. <laughs> In addition to Cheney lying about Armstrong's status as an eyewitness, Armstrong lying about both the source of her story and the details of the shooting, the doctors tending to Whittenden have consistently lied as well, primarily about their patient's condition, only in bits and pieces have we learned that far from being bruised more than bloodied, as Armstrong claimed, Whittington was bleeding profusely from his wounds to such an extent that his daughter noted that her father, quote, didn't know at the time if he was going to the hospital or to the mortuary, end of quote. Only over time have we learned that the pellets plowed deeply into Whittington's flesh, penetrating at least two vital organs, his heart and his liver. And that even now, as many as 200 pieces of shot remain embedded in Whittington's face, neck, shoulder, and chest. Home of the brave and the free, are we? <clears throat> During the uh, the brief few days that media paid attention to the story, reports of Whittington's condition remained unrelentingly upbeat. Doesn't that sound familiar with all these false flag staged events 
the victims come up with a big old smile and they're duping delight, barfing out the word love. Oh, they said love. Oh, it must be true. They must know what love is. We've really become dupes. <laughs> I was re- reserved my comment. I wanted to say something else completely different. We're really in a sad state of affairs, folks, and we can't even see it. We cannot even recognize what's right before our eyes. I would study Ever Pike's letter to Mazzini. Whether it's true or not that he wrote or not really doesn't matter. Because what we've been witnessing for the past 14 years in the beginning stages of the World War III, and if you don't read it and start to understand why things are happening the way they are, it will be too late. It's not that we can really change the course of what is before us. It's probably too late for that. But at least you don't have to be sucked up in the the lies and deceptions there. Before us, and will be magnified greatly. Most likely for many of us, right in front of our doorsteps, maybe inside our own homes. Oh, well, let's go back to this. Though common sense dictated that a 78-year-old man pumped full of birdshot probably wasn't and still isn't doing as well as we have been led to believe. Of course, prior to Whittington's brief, tightly choreographed media appearance, no one in the media seemed to make any effort to talk with him. And why would they? Despite the fact that he was allegedly a good, in good spirits and able to regularly receive visitors while fielding phone calls from Cheney, Needless to say, no one has talked to or about Whittington since that controlled press appearance. I'm about, am I the only one, by the way, who doubts that Whittington has actually released, was actually released from the hospital following that prepared statement? Isn't it more likely that he was prepped and trotted out just as soon as he was physically able to stand and read a statement for the rather obvious purpose of driving yet another nail into the coffin of this story and then promptly returned to the hospital bed, most likely at at an undisclosed private facility, After all, even if he hadn't been shot, what is the likelihood that an elderly man with enough money to afford the very best of medical care would be released directly from an intensive care unit so soon after suffering a heart attack? How quickly, by the way, did the media drop this story following Mr. Whittington's highly publicized release? In addition to following Armstrong's lead, 
and grossly misrepresented the severity of Whittington's injuries, the media team tending to the wounded lawyer has refused to release information that is essential to any meaningful investigation of the shooting. Asked, for example, for the results of tests of Winnington's blood alcohol level upon admission, the only response has been, quote, no comment, end quote. Questions concerning the number of pellets embedded in Winnington's flesh have been brushed aside with the claim that such concerns are not, quote, medically relevant, end quote. Doctors have also, quote, declined to say whether Weddington had had surgery, end quote, being Urbani, uh, whatever, Cheney account questioned, end quote. International Herald Tribune, February 16, 2006, and Nidra Pickler, <laughs> quote, experts, Cheney involved cardinal rule of hunting, end quote. Charlotte Observer, February 14, 2006. What will remain a mystery is exactly how this shooting occurred. Though there has been little mention of such unpleasant topics in the media, mainstream, and otherwise, Mr. Winnington could not possibly have been accidentally shot and the manner described by Cheney and Armstrong. As I mentioned at the top of this post, quails are shot while in flight, which means that in order to actually shoot one, it is generally a good idea to have your gun pointed at an upward direction while firing, (laughs) as that will greatly increase the chances of scoring ahead. The normal shooting stance can be seen demonstrated by the marksman in white at the top of this page and can also be seen in the photos of Dead-Eye Dick himself lining up to shoot a bird in flight. According to the initial story, belated relatedly put out by Cheney and Rove, by Catherine Armstrong, then repeated by Cheney during his chat with Hume. Winton was some 30 yards away from Cheney when he was shot. <clears throat> but how could a shot fired in such a manner possibly hit a man who was standing 100 feet away? How could such a shot hit him standing any distance away? And how, in such wide open terrain, could you fail to see a fellow hunter uh, clad in a bright orange hunting vest and cap? Quote, perhaps you are thinking Whittington was at a higher elevation, possibly standing on a bluff or something of that nature. The quote, but all accounts, however, that does not appear to be the case. Cheney describes their area of South Texas, 
where they were hunting as being characterized by, quote, wide open spaces, end of quote, and with, quote, a lot of brush cover and fairly shallow, end of quote. Not unlike, in other words, the fields, the field in which Cheney is standing in the photo above. The photos in which Cheney's hunting partners are clearly visible to his right. <clears throat> the Texas Parks and Wildlife Hunting Accident and Incident Report from Form provides more detailed account of the hunting conditions at Armstrong's Ranch at the day of the incident. The topography is described as flat. Visibility was said to be fair. Typical cover was described as light. Lighting was sunny. The weather was clear. Again, this description provides no explanation either for the peculiar angle of Cheney's alleged shot or for Cheney's failure to see Mr. Whittington before pulling the trigger. It should be noted here that Whittington would not have been in Cheney's peripheral field of view when that trigger was pulled. Contrary to the impression created by initial reports, the diagram included in the accident report form and more recent medical reports clearly indicates that Whittington took nearly the full force of Cheney's shot. In fact, Cheney's shot was centered in a kill zone with the tightly grouped pattern of bird shots covering indicate that Whittington took nearly the full force of Cheney's shot. In fact, Cheney's shot was centered in the, the kill zone. Okay, did I just... Uh, I'm repeating myself here. So we talked about the kill zone with the tightly grouped patterns and burst covering Wiggins' lower face, neck, shoulder, and upper chest. Cheney could not have scored a more well-placed shot kill if he had drawn a bead directly on <laughs> Mr. Whittington's upper torso, which, in fact, is exactly what he did when, given that Whittington would have had to line up perfectly in the gun sight when the shot was fired. <clears throat> and you think it's not organized crime that runs the land of the brave and the free. The criminals... don't run this. Heck, they make... Uh, Cheney and Bush made uh, the gangs of New York look like uh, child's play, didn't they? Cheney had rendered this story even more unlikely by claiming that Winnington was actually at a lower elevation than Cheney himself. He told he probably was praying for his life, wasn't he? <laughs> he told Hume that, quote, there was a little bit of a gully there, so he was down a little ways before land level, although I could see the upper part of his body, and he sure could, end of quote. Kennedy County Sheriff's, 
Got to have that Kennedy County, right? Kennedy County Sheriff's Department report repeats this claim, quote, the reason Harry Whittington sustained the injuries to his face and upper body was that Mr. Whittington was standing on ground that was lower than the one he, that being Cheney, was standing on. <laughs> we are really stupid, and they really think we are stupid. And you know what? They are right. We're really stupid as a people. <clears throat> by Cheney's own account, then, and by the way, I'm included in that group of stupid people, so don't think I'm thinking I'm better than anybody else. I'm just as dumbed down as everyone else. By Cheney's own account, then, he was not holding the gun in a level position, which be which would be curious enough, but was actually firing in a downward direction. That might be an effective technique for, say, shooting your own dog, hunting dog. It isn't very effective technique for begging quail. Terry Irwin, the president of the International Hunting and Education Association, criticized Cheney's alleged actions in the L.A. Times, noting that, quote, you would never turn around and fire behind you. If a bird comes back over you, you would not take that shot. But let's assume... For the sake of argument that you would take that shot, or more accurately, that Dick Cheney would, because he is, after all, the Vice President of the United States, and if someone of such a relatively low stature as the governor of my state can ride a motorcycle without a license, and in doing so cause an accident, and suffering no legal repercussions, then, by God, my vice president ought to be able to hunt without the proper license and recklessly shoot someone in the face without, while doing so. And Nicholas Riccardi and James Gristenzeg, Hunter, quotes Hunter, suffers set back as criticism of Cheney's grows, end quote, the LA Times, February 15th, 2006. But there is, alas, a bit of a problem here because even if he did take that shot at a bird that had, quote, come back over him, end quote, he certainly wouldn't have been shooting in a downward direction. And if the bird had come not all over because of, but around him, which is, which is extremely unlikely, but let's play along, then Cheney being the seasoned responsible haunter that we all know him to be certainly wouldn't have swung his weapon around while tracking a bird in the horizontal course since such a reckless action would clearly have endangered his fellow hunters, his, secu- his security detail, and anyone else who happened to be standing besides or behind him. As Cheney noted, he hunts with a large entourage 
which he describes as, quote, all the cars and so forth that follow me around when I am out there, end of quote. <clears throat> it sounds like Like he's a godfather or something, though. Some they call him a mafia don or whatever it is. There is yet another problem with the official account of the shooting, both the tightness of the pattern of the shooting and the depth of penetration indicate that Mr. Winnington was not, in fact, standing nearly. Uh, 100 feet from Cheney when he was shot. The 30 yards figure was apparently initially floated out there to minimize the perceived severity of Winnington's wounds. It will be recalled that when the story first belatedly broke, countless experts were quoted in the press offering up the opinion that the damage from the 28-gauge Shotgun loaded with birdshot would be relatively minor if fired from that distance. This initial report from the Ellis Times was typical, and it makes me think of old Biden, the Jesuit Telling people, just get yourself a sawed-off shotgun. It's better for you for defense. <laughs> These guys have their their experience, don't they? Dr. Marshall Morgan, chief of emergency medicine at the US, UCLA Medical Center, said the severity of shotgun injuries depends on the distance between the gun and the person hit by it. A shotgun injury to a person, unless it is at close range, is unlikely to produce a lethal injury that a handgun or firegun would. He said, when the shotgun goes off, the pellets are in a relatively tight pattern, able to inflict severe damage within 20 feet. Morgan said, but as they travel, the pellets spread out and slow down. Quote, the really controlling factor is the distance, end of quote, he said. Alan C. Miller and James Gerstanzig, quote, Cheney shot fellow hunter, end of quote, Los Angeles Times, February 13th, 2006. Since Mr. Whittington's injuries were considerably more severe than they originally reported, we are left with two possibilities. Either all the experts who waited in initially to claim that Winnington's reported injuries were consistent with the shots fired from 30 yards away, 30 yards were lying, or simply mistaken, or the shot was actually fired from a much closer distance, a shorter distance, excuse me, and while it is not uncommon for the government and the media to trout out a series of scripted experts, considered, for example, all the experts who have validated various aspects of the official 9-11 story, 
That does not appear to be the case here. According to the gun owners and hunters that I have spoken to, Mr. Whittington's injuries are initially reported would have been consistent with a shot fired from 30 yards. He actually, his actual injuries, however, clearly are not, as was noted by the International Herald Tribune. Veteran hunters and shooting experts said Thursday that they still don't understand how the vice president injured his fellow hunting partner so badly if he was actually 30 yards away, as Cheney says, quote, it just doesn't add up, end quote, said John Kelly, a quail hunter from New York with more than 36 years of experience. With a shotgun, the pellet spread out to the further you get for that many pellets to hit such a small part of this man's body means Cheney was far closer than 27 meters distance sighted. Ian Urbana Cheney account questioned, end of quote, International Herald Tribune, February 16th. 2006 to be continued. If only reporters would, on the mainstream, will report like Dave did. Where should we read from this? I want to take a little break here, and I think maybe we'll we'll read. uh, Last time we read this. was it two days ago? Um, we read uh, Village of the Damned by way of an introduction and the preface and etc. I think we'll skip down and we'll go to Helter Skelter in the Summer Swelter Return of the Death List. Or maybe we'll do something else. Be desirable people, desirable people, related lives, Vito and his freaks. So much stuff to read here. Power of the People, Dig, Laurel Canyon, Deathless. Maybe that's what we'll do. We'll do three. Laurel Canyon's Deathless. I haven't looked at the chat room. I wonder what's going on there. Yeah, they passed, Andrew. Yeah, hey, Dave. How are you doing, Andrew? Um, yep. He passed away, I believe it was, well, the 22nd, which I believe would be Monday. Yeah. I didn't find out. Well, I did find out eventually, but Biz commented on the email, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And then Chris Kendall mentioned at the end of the show, after the Monday show that you were with me, um, I, I went in there for a few minutes, and he mentioned it. So, so I looked it up on Think of Redeeming thinkorbebeaten.com, and sure enough, the, I believe it was Mushu that put it up, um, that he died the 22nd, I think 12.47 p.m., which, I don't know, it's not because uh, he's suffering a lot, so certainly will be missed, and I don't know how to... to, to 
how to honor him except to do this. So, let me take myself a little break here. But I'll stay on and I'll talk, and then we'll get back to, uh, man, I got athlete's foot. Once again, hey, Viz, thanks for the, uh, the very generous Thanksgiving gift. To those listening tonight, um, Andrew and uh, I guess guest five, I'm not sure who that would be. Happy Thanksgiving. I know we could have a, a show about the hypocrisy of Thanksgiving, but <laughs> or we could just try to be thankful about something. So, anyways, I've been. <laughs> Last moment notice invited, I think, via my for my sister via my friend, my not my mom, not my friend. Thanksgiving strange family that I live from. So yeah, we're to go because my son. He should know his his aunt and uncle and and etc. Even though it's a very disturbed and crazed family, really is. Really, a weird family. I know everybody feels that way. I can't believe how the screwed up family they come from, but some of us have more screwed up families than others, and I'm really in that category. <laughs> um, so, anyways, I hope it's okay. Uh, it's, um, I guess it's all up to her, really. I'm not rejecting her, not one bit, so. Funny thing, well, whether it's the workplace or your own family, you can't talk about the things that really matter. Religion, politics, and um, um, science, what else? Uh, you can't really talk about anything, can you? But you can talk about football. And you can bitch about the coach and the football player and, uh, you know, in my neck of the woods, the big thing here is Michigan-Ohio State, the tedious storyline that's been going on my whole life, you know. And, um, of course, it's not quite what it used to be back in the day, but... um, yeah, football's a big thing. College football is huge in my neck of the woods. And I find it really boring. I, you know, I, I try to follow it. I pay attention to it. I even played football when I was a kid in junior high and high school. It wasn't bad. It wasn't anything like my father. My father was a really good football player. He's second, uh, I guess, all-state tailback. I don't know how you actually say it. But anyways, he was the second best tail back in the state of Ohio. And he had desires to play for Army or whatever. Ended up going to Korean War. And it pretty much put the kibosh to that. But he expected from his sons that they would play football. And my big brother, he... And not only was my older brother, but he's my big brother. <laughs> much bigger than me and much taller than me. And apparently he got some kind of scholarship for wrestling and they played college football and all that. But I never grew. I, uh, I stopped at five foot nine, 
slow as molasses and uh, and uh, just really didn't like it. Just played for my father. My younger brother, he was not coordinated enough, so too many uh, issues. And uh, yeah, that's the way it is. But it is that time of year. It's all about football, isn't it? And uh, I guess baseball is over with. And uh, (laughs) honestly, I haven't been paying attention to sports for a couple of years now. And I haven't watched television now for four years straight, except for a five-minute period at uh, Sunshine Children's Home, where my niece was at. She was dying. And the garbage that was being barfed out of that box just made me sick to my stomach as I watched the the nurses watch mindlessly as they got paid minimum wage to basically kill my niece, as it turned out to be. I was too sick at the time. The MS had taken care of her for six years. She had a rare disease called acid. Uh, Luteric, Casadoria type 1, she was paralyzed from the head down, but she could still, she couldn't talk and she couldn't even move and all that, but her eyes still worked and she could smile. She knew what was going on. And I got sick, and the next year, father died. And then she died the year after that, so. And she died because I couldn't take care of her anymore, and they. She got some septic, 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 whatever it is, uh, where a G tube was, it got super infected, and then she got poison blood and they killed her. Because so. he wouldn't do what you're supposed to do. The experts told him to do complete opposite and make it mandatory to do the complete opposite. How dangerous it is for us to follow the experts. You know that? But they mean well. You know, in reality, most people don't really mean that well, if you're really honest about it. Most people are just out for self-preservation and to get through another week, another month. And most people will end up doing just about anything. This is the truth. This is the reality. And people say, well, you know, I'm after the search of truth. I want the truth. I come to the conclusion that part of the biggest truth of all is this whole is the story of Jesus Christ, whether people like to hear it or not. And um, it really is. I mean, it's the only hope. And recognize that you're a sinner, you're, you're failed, as all, flawed as all get out, fallen, that we're all capable of being a, a murderer and a liar thief and uh, adulterer and etc. That's who we are, really. It's, it's tragic. And we see the externalization of the hierarchy uh, with the, um, the the things like the, half, the Super Bowl halftime show or the music awards and it's just getting so freaking absurd. Really, it is, as they plant the imagery and indoctrinate us into the Illuminati, which is really just 
Luciferians, uh, pagan sun worship, right? Witchcraft. You like to? I think it just seems to be it. Without the spirit of God, people want to become witches. I have no idea. I don't understand that. <laughs> I do once, there was a time when I was really trying to search and I looked into witchcraft and I said, what is the big appeal for that? And I think the only thing really is half, you know, when you're a man of the world, I guess it would be half my good-looking chicks who don't have a problem dressing up like sluts and um, lack of morals integrity and yeah, so they pass some spells and all that. But I really don't know what the I don't know what the power. Then I think I could think of is is that because the lack of the spirit of God in you, you have a desire to be God yourself, and that you're just really about getting all you can get out of life, right? <clears throat> Making the money, having the things, being part of the gang. Fascinating. 2015. We don't know what the world looks like, and people still want to practice sorcery and witchcraft. I find it bizarre. Such things I don't ever quite comprehend. Like I said, I did entertain it for about two nights. Not actually practicing it, but just reading a book about it. And I was just... But I was wrapped up in it too because with the I got into the New Age thing, had no idea it was Luciferianism, and with the unity and all that, and the metaphysical Christianity. This before, you know, this is seven, eight years ago now, and uh, it seemed appealing to me at the time, and it was appealing to me at the time, and got me in a lot of trouble for it. <laughs> I had no idea how could do that. It's an interesting road. It certainly is. Some of you can look out here it's real fast and look at the moon. Last night, I swear to you, I saw the clouds behind the moon. That probably has something to do with the angle. And it's probably just to add a mirage. That probably is a uh, optical illusion, but... Anybody who's looked into it, there's videos out there saying, oh my gosh, look at the moon's behind, clouds behind the moon, behind the sun. And either it is an optical illusion, or the moon and the sun are really a lot closer than they're telling us. I know that sounds crazy, but I saw what I saw, and it started to look like the firmament you know, all got created. Well, starting to make a lot more sense than what NASA's been pumping into our heads and what our teachers have been pumping into our heads. And you can't really blame the majority of them because they were all brainwashed too, so. I really liked the day's wit. I like his ability to actually recognize inconsistencies and uh, 
This is ability to quickly think. Here's a guy who's just a carpenter, and the world is just a carpenter, you know. You're only able to just do stuff like build your house and that kind of thing, but <laughs> it's a little windy out. Snow melted. We had our first snow a couple uh, over the weekend. Had about maybe two inches, and me and my son went out and built a snowman. And the only thing that's left is the bottom of the snowman and throughout the neighborhood. But it's a bit cold. Isn't it amazing that Dick Cheney was able to actually shoot somebody in the face? Get away with it, and nobody even cared, really. What does it tell you about your government? Well, that's right, it's not even your government. Not even my government. Wait a minute, I voted for the president, didn't I? Did you? I think it's pretty clear that at least since 2000, the 2000 elections, United, the people in the United States of America haven't voted for a president, period. If they haven't voted for anyone to begin with. It really doesn't matter that much because, well, if you don't select them, it doesn't really matter if you like them. <laughs> I wonder what wicked man or woman they will throw away. the next quote-unquote president to vent our anger at while they play their game and, and start their World War Three. Okay, well... <clears throat> uh, well I, like I said, I didn't, I'm not going to read the whole book. By, by the way, there's 24 chapters. Andrew... Thank you for sending me this book. And um, I think um, I mean, it's painful for me not to read chapter two. It says, the power to the people. Power to the people. Call this a counterculture. Quote, everyone there had at one time or another, been into Satanism, or, like myself, had dabbled around the edges of the sex, sexual kicks. Sammy Davis Jr., referring to the victim of one zero zero five zero Zero Drive. But we won't read that just to honor Dave and his family. Maybe they're going to be able to help pay for something, funeral costs, or one of the, his grandchildren. So, uh, going to college fund so they could be indoctrinated into the now we're going to be uh, listening. You know what? I'm going to skip three. We'll skip three, and we'll do two. <laughs> so I think that would be much more interesting. The previous chapter, we met a sample of some of the most successful and influential rock 
superstars who emerged from the Laurel Canyon during its glory days. But these were, alas, more than just musicians and singers and songwriters who had come together in the canyon. They were designated to become the spokesmen of the de facto leaders of the generation of disaffected youth. As Carl Gottlieb noted in David Crosby's co-written autobiography, quote, the unprecedented mass appeal of the new rock and roll gave the singers a song in public affairs, end of quote. That, of course, makes it all the more curious that these icons were, to an overwhelming degree, the sons and daughters of the military-slash-intelligence complex and the scions of families that were welded vast wealth and power in this country for the for a very long time. It could, of course, be argued that there was nothing necessarily nefarious in the fact that so many of these icons in a past generation hailed from military-slash-intelligence families, perhaps it could be suggested that they had embarked on their chosen careers as a former rebellion against the values of their parents. And that, I suppose, might be true in a couple of cases. But what are are we to conclude from the fact that such an astonishing number of these folks, along with their girlfriends, wives, and managers, etc., hailed from a similar background? Are we to believe that the only kids from that era who had musical talent were the sons and daughters of Navy admirals, chemical warfare engineers, and Air Force intelligence officers? Or are we just the only ones who were signed the lucrative, excuse me, or are they just the only ones who were signed a lucrative contract and were relentlessly promoted by their labels and the media? If these artists were rebelling against rather than subtly promoting the values of their parents, then why didn't they ever speak out against the people they were allegedly rebelling against? Why did Jim Morrison never denounce or even mention his father's key role in escalating one of America's bloodiest illegal wars? And why did Frank Sampa never pen a song exploring the horrors of chemical warfare, though he did pen a charming little ditty entitled Ritual Dance of the Child Killer, in which manna, a mama's and papa's song, was it that laid waste to the values and actions of John Phillips' parents and in-laws and in which interviews exactly did 
David Crosby and Stephen Steele disowned the family values that they were raised with. We will be taking a much closer look at these performers as well as at many of their contemporaries as we endeavor to determine how and why the youth counterculture of the 1960s was given birth according to the to virtually all the accounts that I have read, this was essentially a spontaneous organic response to the war in Southeast Asia and to the prevailing social conditions of the time. Quote, conspiracy theorists, quote, of course, have frequently opened that what began as a legitimate movement was at the some point co-opted and undermined by intelligent oper operations such as COINTELPRO. Entire books, for example, have been written examining how presumably virtuous musical artists were subjected to FBI harassment and or whacked by the CIA. Here we will, as you may have already ascertained, take a decidedly different approach. The question that we will be tackling is a more deeply troubling one. Quote, what if the musicians themselves and various other leaders and founders of the movement were ever, every bit as much a part of the intelligence community as the people who were supposedly, harassed them, supposedly harassing them? End of quote. What if, in other words, the entire youth culture of the 1960s was created not as a grassroots challenge to the status quo, but a cynical exercise in discrediting and marginalizing the fighting anti-war movement and creating a fake opposition that could be easily controlled and led astray? And what if the harassment of these folks were subjected to uh, were suggested to you were largely a stage managed show designed to give the leaders of the counterculture some much needed street cred? What if in reality they were pretty much all playing the same playing on the same team? I should probably mention here that Contrary to the popular opinion, the hippie slash far child movement was not uh, synonymous with the anti-war movement. As time passed, there was, to be sure, a fair amount of overlap between the two movements. The mass media outlets, as is their their want, want uh, did their very best to portray the flower power generation as the torch bearers of the anti-war movement. After all, a ragtag band of unwashed, drug-fueled, long-haired, sporting flower peace symbols uh, was far easier to marginalize than, say, a bunch of respected college professors and their concerned students. The reality, however, is that the anti-war movement was already well underway before the first aspiring hippie arrived in Laurel Canyon. The first Vietnam War 
quote, teach-in, end quote, was held on the campus of the University of Michigan in the March of uh, 1965. The first organized walk on Washington occurred just a few weeks later. Needless to say, there were no hippies in attendance at either event. That problem was soon would soon be ratified. And the anti-war crowd, those who were serious about ending the bloodshed in Vietnam anyway, would be none too uh, appreciative. As Barry Mills has written in his coffee table book, Hippie, there were some hippies involved in anti-war protests. Quote, particularly after the police riot in Chicago in 1968 when so many people got injured, but on the whole, the movement activists looked on hippies with disdain, in the quote. <clears throat> ah, here we go. So I think it's... Yeah. Sorry for the delay here, folks. Yeah. So what we'll do here Sorry about the delay here, folks. Uh, there we go. Okay. Hopefully that'll be the the end of that. Uh, looks like I was able to figure out how to block him, so we don't have to listen to the filth and the nastiness. The man needs to see us, Frank, and he needs to get right with God. And we pray for him. Well, all right, back to this. Where were we at with this? Okay. Uh, I lost my train of thought here. I had to deal with that harasser. Um, I figured out how to block the chat as far as uh, the unwanted one. So, 
And quite frankly, what I'm going to do is this too. I'm going to see if that affects things by clearing chat, so I don't have to look at that. And you don't have to look at that. Okay, we'll see what happens there. Okay, we'll see what happens. Andrew, text something to me in the chat room just to see if it works. Andrew, Andrew. Okay. Okay, good. So that should be, he's there, but he's hopefully we silenced him. Um, he's really sick. Man. He didn't even address the issues. And if you notice, if anybody's listened to the show, did not address the issues about the fact that he's falsely claiming to be wanted, a wanted man. But I, I think the man's sick. That's why he keeps showing up. He's just mentally ill. Giving a rest, giving a warrant for his uh, father, a summons, not for him, but anyways. We are back at this. We'll go back to, so as Barry Mills has written in his coffee table, the hippie, hippie, there were some hippies involved in the anti-war protests, particularly after the uh, police riot of the Chicago 1968, when so many people got injured. But on the whole, the movement activists looked on hippies with disdain. Peter Coyote, Coyote narrated the documentary Hippies on the History Channel, added that, quote, some on the left even theorized that the hippies were the end result of a plot by the CIA to neutralize the anti-war movement with LSD turning potential protesters into self-absorbed naval gazers, end quote. And exacerbated Abby often once described the scene as he remembered it thusly. Quote, there were all these activists, you know, Berkeley, radicals, White Panthers, all trying to stop the war and change things for the better. And we got flooded with all these, quote, flower children, end quote, who were into drugs and sex and were the hell, where the hell did the hippies come from, end quote. As it turns out, they came initially, at least, from a rather private, isolated, and largely self-contained neighborhood in Los Angeles known as Floral Canyon. In contrast to the other canyons, slicing through the Hollywood Hills, Floral Canyon has its own market, semi-famous Laurel Canyon County store, its own deli and cleaners, its own elementary school, the Wonderland School, its own uh, boutique shops and uh, salons, and more recent and more recently years, its own celebrity rehab facility named as you may have guessed the Wonderland Center. During its heyday, the canyon even had its own management company, Lookout Management, to handle the talent. At one time, it even had its own newspapers.
Yeah, you're right about that guest five. He's a disturbed. He's a disturbed guy. Very disturbed. We'll see who this. Uh, I guess the root eight is left too. Okay. We'll get back to this. Okay. Um, one thing that I should add here is that this is a, has not been an easy line of research for me to conduct, primarily because I have been for as long as I can remember, a huge fan of 1960s music and culture. Though I didn't come of age, so to speak, until the 1970s, I have always felt as though I was cheated by being denied the opportunity to experience firsthand the error that I was so obviously meant to inhabit. And I understand what he's saying there. I think a lot of us in our 40s and 50s felt that way, feel like somehow we were cheated. And there was times in our lives where we thought, well, there was something really exceptional going on in the 1960s. And certainly there was something very exceptional going on. But it was very dark and evil is what it was. Well, <laughs> I did not, yes, come to the age. I've always helped, yeah, parents, okay, experienced firsthand and obviously during my high school and college years well my peers were mostly into faceless corporation rock like journey foreigner kansas and boston etc oh my gosh bombard about have you ever asked yourself this question now i don't know what it's like in your your folks next to the woods but my neck of the woods toledo ohio northwest ohio basically just uh, ann arbor Detroit, um, that kind of baby spin. That's the get most of the music and that kind of thing, and and the radio and how it was just. A, I mean, it's still going on. I haven't listened to it. I don't know what it's like anymore. But I remember I was listening to the radio maybe four or five years ago for a short period, just a very short period, and it blew mind. It blew my mind away that the exact same music that I listened to as a little kid in the 70s, was still being pumped. And, and, and the amount of effort it was to find anything original, some unique music, I mean, it was a daunting task. Not only did you have to now go to you know record music stores, but you had to then check out uh, college radio stations and try to find something that was interesting and actually spend time going places. Maybe you never cared about it. And if you didn't, then that's cool. But for me, I remember that distinctly and still to this day, find it fascinating that in 2000, it was like 2010-11, almost 40 years later, the same stinking music was on the radio. I don't believe that's coincidence. I don't believe it's just because, well, of a popularity. I think Journey and Foreigner and Kansas and all that is all part of this casting spells and brainwashing us and keeping us from recognizing our own reality. So I understand what he's saying here, that somehow we felt like we were being missing out uh, from the 60s, early 70s rock scene. Uh, 
But in reality, it turns out we weren't missing much of anything. In fact, I remember being in a cover band, a Grateful Dead cover band, and playing stuff that we should kind of be writing about here in Hendrix and Joplin and Doors and how tediously mundane, mundane and boring it all was. And it really was. But very popular. As people were all looking for some kind of meaning in our life, we live in a wicked system and we have no idea how wicked it is. It's only until we're willing to look at it for face value do we realize how it's really sad and wicked the whole damn thing is. So true, number five, the corporate audio law. <laughs> Anyways, we'll get back to this. So, yes, so you were just here, the faceless corporate rock uh, journey in Florida and Kansas and Boston. Some of the guys from Boston were from Toledo, by the way, for whatever's worth. Nothing, really, except that a lot of crap comes from my town. <laughs> That's about it. And that the first established Church of Satan, which was from there and still exists, had no idea. And perhaps worse yet, the twin honors of new wave, isn't that new wave music and disco music? It was fulfilling spinning my Hendrix Joplin Doors albums, which I still have, and in the original vinyl versions, well, my color organ uh, remembers these, complete with my black, black light and strobe light. I grew my hair long until well past the age when it should have been sheared off. I may have even strung beads across the doorway of my bedroom, but it is possible that I am confusing my life with the with that of Greg Brady, who, as we all remember once converted his dad's house office into a groovy bachelor pad. Funny thing is, in the 1980s, too, that's when I was a teenager, and they held new wave. And were there any connections with the new world order? I don't know. But that was the beginning of a lot of the uh, symbology, uh, the imagery that was being pumped on to, in particular, white America. Hey, Gordo, how's it going, man? Busy working on my project by myself and all Thanksgiving. Well, happy Thanksgiving, bro. I'm glad you're listening. I know one thing. Uh, the interview I had with uh, Chris Kendall is just, 1,400 downloads already. I don't know how many people are actually listening. I think it's because of uh, it's being put on uh, like fakeology.com and a few other places. Apparently, whatever we were saying last Thursday resonated with somebody. I thought it was a fun interview, but regardless... Let's get back to this, the word of David McGowan. Anyway, once one of the most difficult aspects of this journey is that I have been on 
for the last 15 years or so have, has been watching so many of my former idols and mentors fall by the wayside as it becomes increasingly clear to me that people who I once thought were good guys were in reality having entirely something entirely different. The first to fall naturally enough were the established figures, the politicians who I once quite foolishly looked up to as people who were fighting the good fight. Now, though it now pains me to admit this, there was a time when I admired the likes of Gags, George McGovern and Jimmy Carter, as well as the Governor uh, Paul, Tom Hayden, and Jerry Brown, the Jesuit. Even had high hopes. Oh, so many years ago, for I am nearly, I'm really admitting this in print, Bill Clinton. And is it true? I mean, I first guy I ever voted for was for Bill Clinton. I was so disenchanted. I remember as a kid in in the 70s, uh, my dad actually, we went on a vacation to Plains, Georgia. That was his big plan. <laughs> I remember getting some of those uh, Jimmy Carter brothers beer cans. I had a beer can collection back then. Back then it was a big deal to have beer can collection and I, I got some the Billy Beer maybe opened it on the on the wayside and uh took it home for my built my beer can collection. It's probably worth something now. What a bunch of Fabian socialists. Controlled by Rome itself, man. Since I mentioned Jerry, <laughs> Governor Moonbeam Brown, the Jesuit, the aspiring Jesuit priest who ends up being the governor of the state of California. Oh, yes, we live in a Roman Catholic country. The damnedest thing you finally realize you already has and you just... Never had the gumption to actually look into it long enough to figure it all out. Isn't it just to go to show you how blinded we are, how we cannot recognize the realities in front of our face? But let's get back to this. By the way, I must now digress just a bit. As luck would have it, Jerry Brown was, curiously enough, a longtime resident of a little place called Laurel Canyon. Could it be a coincidence? I think not. As readers of my previous work, Program to Kill, may recall Brown lived in Wonder on Wonderland Avenue. Not too many doors down from six seven six excuse me, eight seven six three Wonderland Avenue. The site of the infamous quote, four on the floor, and a quote, of murders regarded by grizzled 
L.A. homicide detectives as the most bloody and brutal multi-murder in the city's very bloody history. <laughs> as it turns out, the most bloody mass, mass murder in L.A.'s history took place in one of the city's most serene, pastoral, and exclusive neighborhoods. And strangely enough, the cause, the case, excuse me, unusually, uh, usually cited as the runner-up for the title of the bloodiest crime scene, the murders of Stephen Parent, Sharon Tate, Jay uh, Sabring, Bring, Sabring, I guess that's pronounced, uh, Wojtek Frylowski, and Abigail Folger at 10050 Silo, I believe it is, Drive, in Benedict Canyon. Of course that would be in Benedict Canyon. <laughs> Just a couple of miles to the west of Laurel Canyon. How had deep ties to the Laurel Canyon scene as well. As previously mentioned, Vic, victims Folger and Frykowski lived in Laurel Canyon at 2774 Woodstock Road. <laughs> it could be. In a rented home right across the road from the favored gathering spot for Laurel Canyon royalties. Many of the regular visitors to Case Elliott's home, Kelly Elliott's home, including a number of shabby drug dealers, were also regular visitors to the Volger slash Frowski home. Frowski's son, by the way, was stabbed to death on June the 6th, 1999, 30 years after his father met the same fate. Well, they chose a very fateful number, didn't they, uh, day? June the 6th, huh? 6 6, I believe that is, right? January, February, March, April, May, yeah, 6. The 6th month, the 6th day of the 6th month in 1999 would be 666. Is it a coincidence? I don't know. A lot of these folks are into Satanism. Would it be? I don't know. A lot of them were under the control of a Latino man as well. Victim J. Sebrings, I hope I'm saying that, Sebrings, uh, a claimed hair salon set right in the mouth of Laurel Canyon just below Sunset Strip. It was Sebrings, alias, who was credited with sculpturing Jim Morris's famous name, one of the investors in his Sabring International business venture was none other than Mr. John Phillips. Phillips. Sharon Tate was also well known in Laurel Canyon, where she was a frequent visitor to the homes of friends like John Phillips. Case Elliott and Abigail, Abigail Folger. And when she wasn't in Laurel Canyon, many of the Canyon regulars, both famous and infamous, made themselves at home at her place in Silo Drive, K 
Kenyonite Van Dyke Parks, for example, dropped by for a visit on the very day of the murder, and Danny Doherty, the other, quote, pop, Papa, end of quote, or Papa of the, and the Mamas and Papas had, claims he and John Phillips were invited to Silo Drive home on the night of the murder, but as luck would have it, they never made it over. Similarly, Chuck uh, Negron of Three Dogs Night, a regular visitor to the Wonderland Death House, had set up a drug buy on the night of that mass murder, but he fell asleep and never made it over. (laughs) (laughs) Along with the victims, the alleged killers also lived in and or were very much a part of the Royal Canyon scene. Bobby, quote, Cupid, end of quote, uh, Basile, I believe, or, or Basile, 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 something like that. I remember uh, uh, David talking about it, the name, and I just can't remember how to pronounce it. I think it's Basile, I think it was something like that. So, for example, lived in Laurel Canyon apartment during the early months of 1969, and Charlie quote, Tex, and to quote, Watson, who allegedly led the death squad responsible for the carnage in Silo Drive, lived for a time in a house on, guess where, Wonderland Avenue. During that time, curiously enough, Watson co-owned and worked in a wig shop in Beverly Hills, Crown Wig Creation Limited. That was located near the mouth of Benedict Canyon. Meanwhile, one of Jay Sebring's or Sebring's primary claims to fame was his ex uh, his expertise in crafting men's hair pieces, <laughs> which he did in his shop near the mouth of Lower Canyon. A typical day then in the late 1960s would find Watson crafting hair pieces for an upscale Hollywood clientele near Benedict Canyon and the returning home to Laurel Canyon while Sebring crafted hair pieces. Uh, did I just repeating this? Yes, I am. Uh, and then return home to Benedict Canyon. And then one crazy day, as we all know, one of them became a killer and the other his victim. But there's nothing odd about that, I suppose. So let's move on. Oh, wait a minute. We can't quite move on just yet, as I forgot to mention that Sebring's Benedict Canyon home at 9820 Easton Drive was a rather infamous Hollywood death house that had once belonged to Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne. Uh, the mismatched pair were wed in January 2nd, 1932, when Harlow, already a huge star in the silver screen, was just 21 years old. 
Just two months later, on September 5th, Byrne caught a bullet to the head in his wife's bedroom. He was found sprawled naked in a pool of his own blood, his corpse drenched with his wife's perfume. Upon discovering the body, Burns' butler promptly contacted MGM's head of security, Whitty Hendry, who in turn contacted Lois B. Mayer and Irving Fennelberg. All three men descended upon Benedict Canyon home to, you know, tidy up a bit. A couple hours later, they decided to contact the LAPD. The scene would be repeated years later when Sebring's friends would rush to the very same home to clean up before officers investigating the Tate murders arrived. Burns' death was, as so often the case, written off as suicide. His newlywed wife, strangely enough, was never called as a witness at the, the, at the inquest. Burns' other wife, which is to say his common-law wife, Dorothy Millett, reported broaden, reportedly broadened a Sacramento riverboat, boarded a Sacramento riverboat on September 6, 2023, the day after Paul's death, she was next seen floating belly up in the Sacramento River. Her death, as would be expected, was also ruled a suicide. Less than five years later, Harlow herself dropped dead at a ripe old age of 26. At the time, authorities opt not to divulge the cause of death. It was later claimed that bad kidneys had done her in. During her brief stay on this planet, Harlow had cycled through three turbulent marriages and yet still found time to serve as godmother of Bugsy Seal's daughter, Millicent. The Burns was the most famous body to be hauled out of the Easton Drive house in a coroner's bag. It certainly wasn't the only one. Another man had reportedly committed suicide there as well in some unspecified fashion. Yet another unfortunate soul drowned in the home's pool and a maid was once found swinging from the end of a rope. Her death, needless to say, was ruled as suicide as well. That, uh, that's a lot of blood for one home to absorb. With the house's morbid history, though a turnoff to many prospective residents was reportedly exactly what attracted Jay Sebring to the property. His murder would be further darkened would further dark, uh, darken the black cloud hanging over the house. As Laurel Canyon chronicler Michael Walker has noted, L.A.'s two most notorious mass murderers, one in August of 1969 and the other in July of 1969, 
1981, both involving five victims, though, at Wonderland, one of the five miraculously survived, provided rather morbid bookends for Laurel Canyon's glory years. Walker, though, like others who have chronicled that time and place, treats these brutal crimes as though they were unfortunate aberrations. The reality, however, is that the nine bodies recovered from Silo Drive at Wonderland Avenue constitute just the tip of, the, of a very large and bloody iceberg. To particularly illustrate that point, Diane uh, uh, Linkletter, daughter of famed entertainer Art Linkletter, uh, legendary comedy, comedian Lenny Bruce, screen idol Sal Minio Starlet Anger Stevens, and silent film star Raymond. Novero all had something in common. All were found dead in their homes, either in or at the mouth of Laurel Canyon in the decades between 1966 and 1976. All five were in all likelihood murdered in those Laurel Canyon homes. Only two of them were officially listed as murder victims. Minio who was stabbed to death outside his home in 80, at 8563 Holloway Drive on February 12, 1976, and Navarro, who was killed near the county store in a decidedly ritualistic fashion on the eve of Halloween in 1968. Uh, Inger Stevens, I think that's Inger Stevens, I think I said Linger earlier, it looks like it's Inger Stevens. Death in her home is... What the heck's going on there? Hold on a second there. My apologies. I hear my son's computer just went off. Here I am, here I am. How do I do? Daddy finger, daddy finger, how are you? Here I am. How did that happen? Sorry for the delay there. It's such a domestic situation, don't you think? So professional. Thank goodness it isn't. Let's see what's going on here. Sorry about the bump. <clears throat> Once again, my son has a cold. And, of course, it's has to do with um, nursery school. Everyone gets colds. What the heck? I'm going to get rid of that. That's annoying as I'll get out. Anyways, for some reason, my son's really into the song Aiken Drum. <laughs> he wants to hear every version of it, and he loves singing it and pretending. Anyways, pretend he's Aiken Drum. Anyways, 
Yeah, Daddy Fingers. Ha, ha, ha. My little boy listens to those. They have your same too. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not very much to listen to, so what can you do, man? You know how it is. You live in a tight quarters, and, and you know what? You don't listen to the music, and but you got to give them something, you know what I mean? Just for your own sanity, because it's, you know, hey, we're dad. We're not perfect, so can't play all day and do everything that they want to. You got to distract them at least long enough to cook them dinner. <laughs> anyway, she's sleeping, so. Uh, yeah, I got it for Thanksgiving, and now we'll be going to my sister's home, apparently. And I have to deal with all these snide looks, and. Uh, gotta put, I don't know. I don't know what else to do. It's my family, and. They reject me, but what am I to do? I don't know. Anyways, where are we at with all this? Before I got distracted by Daddy Finger. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, We'll just go back to here. Uh, Or is it Diana Link? Link letter, according to the legends, sail off. Uh, We'll go back to Okay. We'll just go back to this. I'm going to Left to ritualist fashion at uh, Eva Halloween in 1968. Of course, that was what's his face, Navarro. Okay, and then now they're talking about Ingrid Stevens' death at her home at 8000 Wood, Woodrow Wilson Drive. It's just like Hollywood, isn't it? Woodrow Wilson Drive. No one now, now know who Woodrow Wilson is. Of course, if somebody would have to die there in Laurel Canyon. On April 30th, at least it means something to me, 1970, um, on the Wall Pier, just notch, I don't know how you pronounce this, it's W A L P U R G I S. N A C H T. So the wall purges nuts on the occult calendar was officially a suicide. Though why she opted to propel herself through a decorative glass screen as part of that suicide remains a mystery. Perhaps she just wanted to leave behind a gruesome crime scene. A simple overdose can be so you know, bloodless and boring. Diane Lettler, letter, Link letter, excuse me, according to legend, sailed out the window of her Shoreham Towers apartment because in her LSD-addled state, she thought she could fly. We know this because Art himself told us that it was so and because the story was retold throughout the 1970s as cautionary tale about the dangers of drugs. What we weren't told, however, is that Diane, born curiously enough on Halloween day in 1948, wasn't alone when she plunged six stories to her death. On the morning of October the 4th, 1969, she was, I'm not pronouncing 
I have an hard time seeing it for some reason. Au contraire. That's what it is. Au contraire. Au contraire she was with a gent by the name of Edward Dorston, who, in a completely unexpected turn of events, accompanied actress Carol Wayne to Mexico some 15 years later. Carol, alas, perhaps weighed down by her enormous breast, managed to drown in barely a foot of water. While Mr. Durston promptly disappeared, as would be expected, he was never questioned by the authorities about Wayne's curious death. After all, it is quite common for the same guy to be the sole witness to two separate accidental deaths. Art also neglected to mention that just weeks before Diana's curious death, another member of the Linkletter clan, Art's son-in-law, John Sayer, Sayer, something like that, Z-W-Y-E-R, caught a bullet to the head in the backyard of his Hollywood Hill homes. But that, of course, was unconnected was an unconnected suicide. <clears throat> a lot of people like to kill themselves. It seems to be the end result of signing your soul over to Satan. As bad as our lives are, and they're bad, at least we have hope. These people don't have hope at all. And after they're used up, filled up, how many of them just end up this way, one or the other? I'm not even going to discuss here the circumstances of Lenny Bruce's death from, from acute morphine poisoning on August the 3rd of 1966, that glorious satanic year. Because, to be perfectly honest, I don't know too many people who don't already assume that Lenny was whacked. I'll just note here that his funeral was well attended by the Laurel Canyon Rock icons and control over his unreleased material fell into the hands of a guy by the name of Frank Zappa. Good old Frank. Another unsavory character named Phil Spector whose crack team of studio musicians dubbed the Wrecking Crew were the actual musicians playing on many studio recordings by such Laurel Canyon bands as the Monkees, the Birds, the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas. My goodness, what a what a chance it would have been to spend more time with Dave. To spend more time with Dave, you know what I mean? Not to not to make it. Uh, <clears throat> Just spend time with them. You know what I mean? They just have some conversations and not be so rigid as a lot of these interviews are. I think that Dave would have really shined. <clears throat> if he would have had a kind of a little more of an open forum. He really would have. He shined as it is. But he really, I think he would have, let's put it this way, what if Dave would have had a show like I have? Can you imagine how people would listen to it? How many thousands of people would have been interested in it? Can you imagine how entertaining it would have been? 
you know how many people he had guessed he could have actually I thank goodness he was the researcher that he is or was excuse me and thank goodness of all the gifts he gave us knowledge and understanding of this very whacked out world and although he didn't go all the way going to the exposing the Jesuits Monster truck videos. So that's cool. <laughs> you know, my and my son. You know, he likes to watch his like weird videos, like storms, like storms that like uh, blow over trees and stuff like that. He's just fascinated by that. What other things does he like to watch? Oh, he's really into uh, water slides as well. He, those videos of people taping themselves going down water slides. He's really into that as well. So. Yeah, Dave, Dave McGowan, I guess. What an interesting fellow. What an interesting fellow he was. We're going to jump here to Chapter 10, Helter Skelter in the Summer Swelter, Return of the Death List. As I said, and as uh, Gordon and I had this conversation a few months ago when we were coming to the realization that... uh, uh, they wouldn't be with us for very long, and and Andrew bought me this book, and I want to read it on the show, but as we talked a few months ago, it's probably not appropriate. Even if it's le- legal problems, not it's probably not appropriate at this time to read the whole book, only because it should be a teaser, it should motivate people to buy the book to help support his family, and you know he had all those books, he did all that work, and. Uh, we can still learn a lot by, you know, even if we only read half the chapters in this book, it's enough to knock your socks off and have a good time. So, <laughs> who cares? Plus all the writings he has on his website. Quote here, everybody was experiencing and taking it all the way. It opened up a negative force of energy that was almost demonic. Frank Mazula, editor of the film Performance. It is now, sad to say, time to add some more names to the ever-growing Laurel Canyon death list. Can you imagine what between uh, chapter uh, 2 to chapter 10 is like? Hmm. <laughs> um. <laughs> Chapter 10, Graham Nash explaining to author Michael Walker how close, Char- close Charlie Manson was to the Laurel Canyon scene. Quote, I mean, blank, uck. He uh, audited, aud- auditions for Neil Young's for uck sake. <laughs> I'm not trying to heat for a little bit. You know, it's, it's getting cold in this um, house, and I got my son. And for some reason, I'm going to Snort House, and I got a slumlord. I never thought I'd ever have to be in this situation. Not to say that I, I haven't in prior years. I know what it's like to uh, live very, very tight quarters. I remember me and my ex-wife, we had to live in a, in a one-bedroom 
well, in a flat in England, and you shared a house, and you got a, a room, and the room was big enough for the bed and a couple crates to put your clothes in and stuff like that, and that's how we had to live. It sucked, and the people sucked too. And they probably thought I sucked as well, so it was a sucky situation, really. <laughs> you know, it's not the easiest thing to live with a guy from Toledo, Ohio, let's put it that way. At least this particular guy. Oh, it's fascinating in its own right when you think about um, it. motivates me reading this stuff at some point in my life to do the research of this holy Toledo, you know, this research of Toledo and um, what that really means, you know what I mean? Because it turns out the connections to Satanism in my town, and I imagine we have our own really sorted. We definitely have a very sordid history in Toledo, especially when the uh, prohibition and the gangsters running alcohol up to um, Detroit and Canada and back, and like every other house had its own uh, distill and, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what an interesting shithole this is. <laughs> Excuse my language. But uh, there's a reason why uh, John Dever wrote a song I spent a week one day in Toledo, Ohio. So. And probably would be a very interesting story if I really dug into it, especially with the fact that the history of Satanism and the history of all these Catholic priests, you know, sodomizing kids and practicing uh, uh, satanic rituals. And, and I'm not making any of this stuff up. You can just go online and look it up for yourself. And <laughs> I had no idea any of this stuff was going on until I started opening up my eyes and started researching about how the world worked. In fact, I didn't know much about it at all until this past year. Once again, a fine example of myself, at least, and the reality of people around me of how blind we are to our reality. When you live just two blocks away on the same street of the Church of Satan, that have been there since 1946, the very first one, <laughs> you have to ask yourself, at least I have to ask myself, how blind am I? <laughs> how stupid am I? How naive am I, at least? How have I, by the grace of God, been a Avoided all this stuff. I mean, I was in the music scene and turned out I was playing with guys who were Satanists and I had no idea. Iggy Pop used to hang out here quite a bit. Self-professed Satanist. <laughs> My cousin. I'll be honest with you, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I was a kid that grew up in a pretty sheltered situation, as bad as it was, and it was bad. I was bad with my dad. It was bad with the family. It was a lot of huge amounts of dysfunction. But at least I still had, there was a time period I was able to, there's still woods around, and the creek still had fish in it, and there was adventures, and I pretty much, as a kid, lived at Huckleberry Finn, and the creek would flood and get a tree and float down for miles and then walk back and do all sorts of things. And um, I don't know. I think, you know, in a strange way, 
as hard as that was growing up like a Mormon in Toledo, Ohio, which there's like a couple dozen families in the whole Northwest area, um, I mean, every time somebody would find out I was a Mormon, wow, I never knew a Mormon. Of course, you folks out West know about Mormons. You see it, you've all seen them all over the place, but not in Toledo. So, some way, some weird, perverse, or not only perverse, but some weird way, the God that made you and I somehow used that as a way to protect me from spending too many weeks in one day in Toledo. It's a really weird place, people. It's a really weird place. A lot of weird people come out of it. A lot of weird people that you know of in Hollywood. The connection between Satanism and Hollywood is very profound. <laughs> and I don't laugh because it's funny. I laugh because I don't know what else to do. So, Okay, let's find out about Helter Skelter in the summer swelter. It is now. Sad to say, time to add more names to the ever-growing Laurel Canyon death list. First new name is Mr. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who purportedly drowned without assistance in his home swimming pool in July, uh, on July 3rd, night. 1969. At the age of 27, Jim Morrison would allegedly die precisely, precisely two years later. Also at the age of 27, just three days after Jones' tragic death, the Stones with the Hells Angels providing security played a previous scheduled concert in Hyde Park. Footage in which appears Kenneth Anger's invocation of my demon brother. Despite being the founder of the Stones and being widely regarded as the main creative force within the band, Jones had unceremoniously dropped by the group on June 9th less than a month before his death. So, so he was dropped by the group unceremoniously a month before his death. He was replaced just four days later by Mick Taylor, who in turn was later replaced by Ron Wood. And if you ever seen a warlock or a male witch in your life, that would be him. He's <laughs> I always tell they are by the crap art they do, too. I like to wear their eyeliner. And... I knew too many guys like that. I never was one of those guys. I never fit in anywhere, man. Anyways, uh, even in the punk scene, you know, I was never fit in. Man. I just couldn't do it. I just... Guys wearing their mohawks and purple-green hair, and I'm just like... There's nothing rebellious about that. You guys are just... You're worse conformists than the the cheerleaders and the the foot guys on the football team. Come on, give me a break. Anyways, back to this. It would later be claimed that Jones 
was booted from the band due to his chronic substance abuse problems, although Keith Richards' legendary drug intake never seemed to pose a problem for the group. The Rolling Stones were not, to be sure, a Laurel Canyon band, but they did spend a considerable amount of time there, and they were very closely tied to the scene. As Barney Hoskin writes in Hotel California in the summer of 1968, the English band was flirting heavily with Satanism and the occult and spending a lot of time in Los Angeles in the world. A lot of time, that is, in and around Laurel Canyon. And during that time, Mick Jagger was involved in two occult-drenched, Crowley-influenced film projects, Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising and Donald Campbell's performance. Jagger was the first musical superstar tapped by Anger to compose a soundtrack for his Lucifer Rising project, which by the time was to star Mason Knight, Bobby Boussoulet, Anger would later solicit a soundtrack for a long-delayed film project by Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page, the proud owner of one of the world's largest collections of Aleister Crowley memorabilia, including Crowley's notorious uh, bull, I guess, Bolskin, Bolskin estate on the shores of the Scottish Loch Ness. When ultimately released, however, the film featured a soundtrack by neither Jagger nor Page, but rather one that was composed, recorded, and arranged inside a prison cell by convicted murderer Bobby Boussoulet. The footage of the, that Anger had shot to Boussoulet, meanwhile, ended up in a different film, a aforementioned invocation of my demon brother, co-starring and Lucifer Rising as Osiris was the performance writer and co-director Donald Seaton Kamel, or Kamel, who happened to be a good friend of Roman Polanski. Kamel, who some described as a master manipulator, was the son of Charles Richard Camel, or Camel, who happened to be a close friend and biographer of the notorious occultist Aleister Crowley. None of this can be coincidence. None of this. <laughs> I'm sorry, but Aleister Crowley connected to me. Oh, gosh. If you're so screwed. <laughs> Get right with God. Because <laughs> the... It's madhouse out there, man. Donald himself was, or at least claimed to be, Crowley's godson. Camille's decidedly Crowleyan film. Crowleyan film was originally to star his good friend, Marlon Brando. Really? But the role ultimately went to actor James Fox. Brando and Camille did, however, find time to write a novel together. 
Speaking of Brand, speaking of Brando, who somehow found himself in the center of a curious string of deaths that began May 16, 1990, when Marlowe's son Christian gunned down Dagdroth, the father of his sister Cheyenne's unborn child, in Marlowe's Lowell Canyon adjacent home. Though convicted, Christian got off with a rather light sentence, thanks primarily to Marlon having had his own daughter. The prosecution's potential star witness locked away in a mental institution in Tahiti, safe from subpoena. Subpoena. A few years later, on April the 14th, 1995, 25-year-old Cheyenne was found swinging from the end of a rope. Her death unsurprisingly ruled a suicide. The next year, Christian Brando was released from prison and promptly became involved with a woman by the name of Bonnie Lee Akeley, who caught a bullet to the head on May 4, 2001, while in the company of new hubby Robert Blake, her tenth husband. Marlon dropped dead next in July 1st of 2004, though his death wasn't particularly shocking given that he was getting on in years. His home was promptly purchased by good friend and neighbor Jack Nicholson, who immediately announced plans to bulldoze it declaring the structure to be decrepit. He never did, though, explain why a man wealthy enough to own his own uh, Polynesian island was uh, purportedly living in a derelict home. A few years later, on January 26, 2008, Christian Brando dropped dead at the relatively young age of 49. And if you think none of these people were involved in Satanism and the cult and Luciferianism, I don't know what to say to you. Do your homework. I'm trying to think, I can't remember. Marlon Brando, in fact, I even played that. I can't remember. Marlon Brando was famous about some kind of. Uh, oh, yeah, that's what it is. He got involved with the Native Americans and that stand and. Um, Uh, at Custer's last name, what do they call that? Anyways, back in the 70s, the Indians, they protest, and they, they had a standoff with the government, and he was all involved with that. Makes you wonder, that's for sure, how much was that orchestrated by the government itself? Certainly, they were involved with the whole sh- the events that led up to that. Uh, what the heck did I call it? Do you remember? Does anybody remember? Yes, what the heck was this? Anyways, we'll get back to this. Uh, where were we at all this? People coming in and out. Very cool.
Uh, Returning now after a brief digression to our discussion of uh, Donald Kamel's performance, we find that Mick Jagger was cast to play the role of Turner, a debauched rock star, which obviously was a real stretch for Mick. Wink, wink. Mick Fox, uh, James Fox, can be played Chaz, a violent, organized crime figure. He was trained for the role by David Litvinov, a real-life crime figure and associate of the notorious sadistic Cray Brothers. Litvinov reportedly sent Fox to the south of London for a couple of months to hang out with his gangster buddies. We need to return according to the various accounts. Fox had literally become a violent character he portrayed in the film. After completing the work of the project, Fox reportedly suffered a massive nervous breakdown, suspended his his acting career, and withdrew from public view for over a decade. Recruited to create the film soundtrack was Bernard Alfred Jack Nietzsche's an occultist and son of the supposed medium Nietzsche, along with Sony Bono, <laughs> had been his music. He began his music career as the lieutenant for gun and brandishing producer Phil Spector. I guess as Nietzsche was one of the architects of Spector's famed Wall of Sound. Nietzsche was also the familiar was familiar presence in the Laurel Canyon scene, collaborating with such noted bands and artists as Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young, Randy Newman, Michael Phillips, The Turtles, Captain Beefheart, Carol King, David Blue, Ricky Nelson, and Tim Buckley. Nietzsche's performance soundtrack was composed according to author Michael Walker, quote, in a witch's cottage in the canyon, end quote. I'm not exactly sure what a, quote, witch's cottage is, end quote, but it is nice to know that Laurel Canyon had one. One of the musicians hired by Nietzsche's to play on the soundtrack was for well George, who who we will also be adding to the Laurel Canyon death list. For now, let's add Donald Kamel uh, to the list since on April 24th, 1996, he began yet another of the he became yet another of the characters in the story to catch a bullet in the head, and yet another to allegedly die by his own hand. David Litvinov, performance's director of authenticity, reportedly also committed suicide. Nishi died of a heart attack on August 25, 2000. A few years earlier, he had made an appearance on primetime television as a gun-brandishing drunkard arrested 
on the street of Hollywood on cops. Bad boy, bad boy, what you gonna do? The next time on the death, the next name on the death wish, death wish, the death list was Stephen or Steve Brandt, um, who was a close friend of both John Phillips and one of the victims at 1050 Seville Drive. Brandt allegedly overdosed uh, on barbiturates in late November 1969, some three and a half year, months, excuse me, after the Manson murders. And the days and weeks following those murders, Brandt had placed numerous phone calls to the LAPD. Those calls became increasingly frantic in nature, and Brandt became increasingly fearful of his own life might be in jeopardy, he soon decided to put some distance between himself and L.A., and soon he headed to New York City, naturally. On the night of his death, according to Phillips' autobiography, Brandt attended the Rolling Stones concert at Madison Square Garden, where he attempted to run on the stage but was repelled and beaten by the security guards. He then went home... According to official mythology, overdosed. It seems obvious that if someone had information that desperately needed to be made public, and if it was the kind of information that authorities had, say, willfully failed to act upon, and if the information was of uh, the type that could not be taken to the mainstream media, and if the year was 1969, the mass communication technology that we now take for granted did not yet exist, then grabbing the mic at the Stones concert in Madison Square Garden might just be one of the most effective means of disseminating that information. Brandt failed in what may have been an attempt to do just that, he turned up dead hours later. Next up is David Blue, another of the forgotten talents of Laurel Canyon. Blue was born in Stuart, was born Stuart David Cohen, uh, February the 18th, 41. Shortly afterwards, his father was deployed overseas, according to David. His dad came hobbling home on crutches and stayed depressed all his life. That's understandable. Not unlike, it seems fair to say, the family situation of our old friend, Phil Oaks, Oaks, O-C-H-S. Oaks, I guess it is. Oaks. David and his slightly older half-sister, Susan, entered a hellish existence consisting of alternating periods of rage and silence. Susan got out first, only to end up busted for prostitution in New York City in 1963. Susan's next stop, just a few months later, was at the county morgue. I understand exactly how it is to grow up from the father who was traumatized and brutally 
scarred for life being in war. As he was in the Korean War and he came home, he was never the same. And it was hell. And I understand now, looking back, while my big brother and my, uh, my older sister escaped very early from the family, I ended up being the one that, of the kids, that was kind of like the surrogate. It sounds sick, but the, you know, the surrogate spouse. <laughs> it was weird as all get out for us, you know, for my dad and mom to communicate. And they still, by the way, they do this to this day. My sister does this with my my mom. My sister doesn't call me. She calls my mom, and my mom calls me saying, oh, yeah, there's a Thanksgiving party you invited. They can't actually call me. They call on that. My mom, I don't think half the time they've even mentioned me. I think my mom just kind of the bridge to try to make it work still. But I remember as my dad being very difficult to be with, and you know, his constant response was, Get away, don't bother me, go ask your mother. And that was how it was in my life growing up. So, And that was the extent of having a conversation with him, too. But he was, you know, I understand now what he was going through and what happened to him in his situation growing up and then going to Vietnam or the Korean War and going through the hell that he went through with the Chinese and uh, barely making it alive and seeing... Most likely, the bare minimum hundreds, most likely thousands and thousands of people, men, his own age, slaughtered, murdered. The chaos of war. It turns out to be, once again, another war for the Roman Empire and the Vatican. The only people that won out of that Korean War were the Jesuits, as they were able to finally establish a footing in Korea after four to five hundred years attempt to try to do that. Anyways, I understand why my sister and brother have fled as fast as they did. So it's very difficult to be with somebody who's been traumatized before and doesn't have God in their life and I know a lot of people find that very tiring and they don't want to hear that. Most of my life, I would have been the same way. Just shut up about your God stuff. But you know what? Honestly, it's the only way for man to endure the insanity that's around him. When you're young and in your 30s and 40s, you still, you know, you're at prime of your life and you think you got it all. And you still have dreams, whatever that means. And you ambitions. By the time you get to my age, in your half a century, you realize that not anything that you ever believed in was actually real. And that it's amazing that I, myself, have another day in this life. And um, quite frankly, the only thing that keeps me going is my hope and faith in you got it, Jesus Christ, something that nobody wants to hear, but I said the same thing as religion. I don't have any faith in man-made religion. I don't have any faith in any man's institutions. And it's funny that for me, you know, as a guy, you know, music was my outlet as a teenager. As the uh, nature thing dried up and as I got older and girls and all that kind of thing and the old hormones thing. And anyways, and the, you know, the woods were all developed and the, the strain became choked from overdevelopment and all this other crap, mindless 
things that you witness in life and um, if you have eyes to see. I got into music, and music was what kept me going. And I uh, got this real cheap bass guitar, and uh, that's what I did, man. I wanted to play bass. I dropped out of football and started playing upright bass in high school orchestra, only to learn how to play the bass. And um, even lied to the... Uh, they had a, you know, the, or, the conductor, or what's his name, Mr. Alshouse, that I know how to play bass, and I, I didn't even know what an E-string was, so. But I learned fast, because I wanted to do it, and it became my outlet, so. And music was the thing that helped me get through my teens, as insane as that is, and how unright and dysfunctional, not just my family, because, you know, there's a... T- in life, you're con- you're told and you get convinced that it's your fault that there's things wrong with you you need to change. And there always are things that we need to change. No one's perfect. And then it's the family and it's mom and dad. But there finally comes a point in time when you truly mature under the situation and it's complete reverse of what they say. They say, oh, you're just a victim. You're just a victim. You're just a victim. Oh, you're just suffering from victimization or that you need to get over it. You need to have a better attitude. You need to, you know, get your act together and forgive people. At the same time, they have these programs like Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, Adult Children of, alcohol, of Alcoholics uh, and, this whole blaming of family, very, very sinister thing that's been going on for the past 20 years. Instead of dealing with the root cause of what we're going through, which clearly is the satanic system that we live under and the fact that we don't know God. As a culture, and as a community, as a country, as a corporation, whatever you want to call it, it's clear that we do not know God. Our God is a dollar bill. Our God is television. Our God is our naive quest for knowledge. But an endless search for knowledge that gets nowhere. Astrophysics is a great example of that. Oh my gosh, when you study that and you really study the other side and you really contemplate and study that thing that makes everyone so cringe annoy the heck out of you but when you do your own research you realize that the world that they say we live on is not the case now whether you believe it's flat or not really matters the real issue is the fact that we don't know what it looks like and a whole religion around a fake cosmology dominates us. You're, you're stuck in a religion whether you like it or not, a man-made religion. You don't get out of this. That's why it's so important. Whether you're Roman Catholic or whether you're uh, evangelical or whether you're a Pentecostal or whether you're a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a scientist and you practice scientism or whatever it may be, you don't get out of it. You're stuck in a false paradigm, a false religion. It doesn't matter where it is. It could be a public school system. It could be a corporation. You don't get out of it. 
That's the gig. That's the game. The game is you're stuck under a satanic system, the Roman Empire, You're physically, you're physically enslaved into this situation. And you can't escape it. So, what do you do about it? Do you start a revolution? Really? Oh, how they want you to do that. Desperately do it. They want you to do that. Doesn't matter if it's with guns or an intellectual or political revolution. Long as a man's way, we can fix it. There's no way they could deceive us. We know too much now, don't we? But the reality is, you're trapped. I'm trapped. And there's no way of getting out. We're in Babylon. Flat out. Mystery Babylon. Although we might look, right now I'm right here looking at the houses, and although I live in the dumpiest house in the neighborhood, it's a nice little neighborhood. Nicely mowed and nice roads, nice sidewalks. You know, I have a nice Sorry about the wind. It is windy. But you know what? That's that's where we're at. Where's the how what's the escape? Um there's no escape. <laughs> so the only thing that I've come to a realization of a solution is really not perfecting myself or trying to change the world, but realizing that uh, it's a hopeless cause and then I'm going to put my faith in my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I know a lot of people will find that offensive and a lot of people will be driven away from this whole concept and idea, but you know what? I recommend trying it, trying it again, keep on trying it, because there's really no other answer. There is no other answer. So being angry and trying to fight the world and trying to fight everybody, no problem, Andrew. Thank you for the book and thank you for your support. There is no other answer but our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. If you want to fight the world, go ahead and fight it. You want to go fight all the corruption? The only thing that happens that I've seen over and over again is make it corrupt. Try to fight the system. And then in the process, they end up being part of the system. You end up being like Ozzy Luke. Poor guy. He's mentally ill. He's mentally sick. I see this over and over again. I've seen this with everybody who tries to... try to fight these by one's own means. God seems to have a way to humbling us all put us in situations where it seems hopeless. And really, I find the only answer to it is having abiding faith in Jesus Christ. It's a really annoying message. I know it is, because that's how I used to feel. 
I mean, really, about the only thing that helps a man get through the madness that surrounds you. He wakes you up. Spirit God wakes you up. He makes you realize the absolute lies. The deception that's all around you. See, the greatest creation it seems that man has ever made, truly, is the art of deception. Seems to be the case. I know that sounds very cynical, but I don't know where else, what else one can say. I, I mean, I've seen too many movements that end up going nowhere. I see Albert Pike's plan for the uh, his, their Third World War in the Roman Empire, the Illuminati, if you like. The ruling elite of this empire, and they're absolutely sorry. I mean, as you think about it, once again, I can't stop thinking about the fact that the influx of endless Muslim immigrants into Western Europe and the United States and Canada and others. And why are they doing that when it's completely against the the um, well, it's, 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 it's illogical as far as if you were an empire trying to maintain yourself. Except that's what they've always done. They've always relocated. The conquerors, the conquered, they always are relocated in this Babylonian system. But it's clear this time around what they're doing is they're, as they economically have made it very difficult for the average American just to maintain. And now you're sending more immigrants in. Yes, there's going to be their war. We're not getting out of any of this. The internal strife that's going to happen, unfortunately, by the... And it will be between the Zionists and the Mohammedists. They're going to have their war. And this is going to be a big one. It's going to be on our shores. You see it happening. It's really quite sad. So, what was 1960s rock scene really about? Obviously, it was about a, it was a grand distraction, wasn't it? It was a a whole bunch of uh, circus and bread. Distract the masses. Distract the slave class from what was really happening. Isn't it interesting at the moment when the corporation United States of America was at its height, they start tearing it down. We're not getting out of this. They're going to have their third war, third world war, and they're going to create their satanic dream of their one world order, headed by Rome itself and the papacy. The ultimate political institution, the richest institution in the world.
we're in our lifetime most likely we'll truly see what it means the modern day version of feudalism if we're not already living in, in it already I hope God has a place for Dave. I pray for his family and his children. Didn't really know him that well, but I knew him enough that he influenced me enough. And uh, for some reason, he, the last show they did was with uh, on here. Of all places to have a show, it is Ranky Dink. Very rinky dink, extremely small. A guy you know, staring at a laptop with uh, headphones, with a show and talk to. I think about uh, the interaction with uh, Gordo, who's here, uh, or Comstock, or Keith Hansen, or all the other folks that I'm sharing in my journey. And uh, why does it all happen? Why is the situation at hand such that you even have to do this? Why can't there be a pub, a cafe, where you can have this kind of conversation? We're in dire straits. We really are in uh, Babylon. I don't, you know what? If I were in the shoes of the people in Laurel Canyon... High probability that I might have put a gun to my head, too. <laughs> Even though they had the things of this world that are so empty. And although I know so many people are suffering and financially and so many other ways. Just about everybody's ever been on my show. I get to know them a little bit. For some reason, we end up sharing the same similar story and um, why is that? I wouldn't put my faith in this world. If you want to change things, that's great. Go for it. I tried it myself. I was involved with things like East Timor Action Network and uh, of course there was a thing about the greenscaping and designing nature trails and trying to convince developers not to wipe out everything in my community as far as native fauna and having places for kids to go so they can catch a frog or a fish or whatever just experience God's good creation you know it's God's wonderful gift that he's given up this world and all the many creatures. And, and although I did demonstrate that it was actually feasible and still no interest, no bite. And 9-11 happened. <clears throat> it's fascinating to look at the whole thing about the truther movement and all this stuff that's going on on the Internet. And is it really changing anything at all? except for a few individuals who are bothering to just kind of look into the world itself, but no, nothing's changed. Nothing as far as better. Things have gotten worse. Things have gotten worse in the past four years. They haven't gotten better. A whole lot of empty promises. 
uh, that's what it's been. And uh, putting your faith in the ways of man and of this world are foolish, extremely foolish. And extremely tragic to see how the world's all falling out. It makes me wonder where for my children, my, not my, my child, my son. But what can one do except go tell them the truth? Just tell them the truth. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Tell them what the world's really about. Tell them about all the deception lies out there and have them have the opportunity to make the decision. I really don't think it's like, you know, go to church on a Sunday. I think as a father, it's my responsibility to read the Bible to him and grow with him in the knowledge of the Word of God and accept what is true with it. Let him have that opportunity. He's not going to find it in the world. As we see the externalization of the hierarchy, we see the growth of Satanism right before our eyes. How many people even recognize it? Not too many. Even those who call themselves Christians can't actually see what's right in front of their face. Actually, the title Christian really is, quite frankly, meaningless. I believe strongly that 99%, if not more, of what people who call themselves Christians aren't even that. They're church people. They're part of the, the, the uh, Babylon. They're part of... Um, the deception themselves. I understand why. And I also understand that where I'm at doesn't make me any better than anybody else. At all. At all. If you were to meet me, you'd be very disappointed, I'm sure. You'd be extremely disappointed to know who I am, and you'd probably say, oh, that's what a Christian is? And I would say, absolutely, you're right. Just sent anybody the uh, RLC and uh, Guest 5 a very good presentation. Although I don't agree with his, uh, but a very small, maybe less than a minute about a dispensational future is nonsense. I, I, I understand how many Christians hope that there is some kind of rapture because shit is going to hit the fan. And an economic collapse, it's going to be nothing. Nothing. It's just part of it. And I'm not here to, to, to fear monger at all because I really believe there's an answer and there's hope in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. That's what give a man peace in a fallen world. That the prince of this world, which is Satan, still is allowed to run the show. And if you will not accept it, you will not know the true God and where to turn. Anyways, this guy, he did a fantastic job. It's a great presentation. And uh, I wouldn't just, you know, it's Aaron Tazor. And um, 
I have to can't I have to look again what the um let me look on my I sneeze here too. Let me find this. Yeah, here we go. This is the better one. This is his actual this guy is actually has his own YouTube channel. He stopped putting up videos and all that. I think like so many, we're in a time period where um, a lot of people were closing shop. Oh, I don't believe there's a rapture either, my friend. I don't believe. I think uh, that's a dispensational fisherism as part of the the deception of Satan. I don't think uh, there's no free ride here, no free launch. Anyways. Um, I've done ex- extensive shows on it already, so plenty of information out there demonstrating that the Jesuits are behind the dispensational futurism and the seven-year rapture and all that, the tribulation period and the rapture and all that stuff. It's all there designed to keep Christian off, their, off the, the game and not to pay attention to what's really going on. And actually, they end up becoming a complicit a uh, part of the, the the conspiracy itself. See, the best thing that a Christian can do is really expose the enemy and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ because it doesn't go well with the Roman the uh, Roman Empire's plans. Nothing worse than really teaching the gospel of love. And people don't say, "Oh, I don't want to hear that," but it's true. It's what really causes them problems. If we're not willing to fight their wars. They have to push us into a situations where people must fight wars, or really, and the truth, is, we'll find out who really will actually follow the word of God, and who won't. So this is the game they play. They push us in these situations and force many to make the wrong decision. They are the wicked that rule the wicked. Anyways, uh, this is a very nice part. Anyways, this is the guy. You can just check it out. It's called the This Prophecy. Don't take it as far as him have an understanding of biblical prophecy because you're going to find him and hardly anybody does. He's grabbing at straws just like all the rest. But he does explain the world that you live in. He does a great presentation. It just shows you flat out what's going on through a simple slideshow. The amount of information that you'll get, he doesn't even touch about that. He recognizes the Rome, recognizes the Jesuits. He doesn't go too much in depth in how all the evangelicals, um, all the uh, quote-unquote Protestant churches at this point have all been usurped. We're in a time period where God's people are going to have to be like Daniel. And find out if you really are one of the remnant. What that actually means. Because it's not in a church. Not in brick and mortar. If we were forewarned this anyways, we'd be getting type and over and over again, we've been told and warned that this is the situation that we will be in. And if we can't get ourselves right now, and I don't even like the word spiritually because I think that's wrong too. We just don't get it. If we don't get ourselves right, 
with the Word of God and understand who our Lord Savior is, and and really not ask, uh, asking for anything more than mercy at this point. Mercy. Mercy is the prayer. Mercy. It's fascinating to see so many of the blind asking for things like the gifts of the Spirit, laying on of hands, the healing of people. And at first glance, it seems really noble or understandable. But the truth of the matter is, what they really want, what we all want from God is what we want instead of what he wants. And if he wants you to be stuck of where you're at, just like I am, doing something similar to what I'm doing, maybe doing a show, a recording, some kind of thing, it talks to you, whatever, and just sharing the message, sharing how corrupt the world is and what the answer is. That's where we're at. That's unfortunate. That's the way it is. Unfortunately, you will not find it in the priestcraft. You will not find it in your pastors. They will not tell you the whole truth. The fact of the matter is most of them, and it's not out of the fact that they are being deceptive. They already are deceived. So it's the blind leading the blind. It's tragic. I hate to sound that way and make it sound hopeless, because it's not hopeless. There's great hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. It's hope in the New Testament. It's hope in understanding Jesus, what he has uh, offered us, freeing us from the legalism, the bondage of this world. I understand. I've had guests on the show that do not agree with me. They feel that it's cop-out and that we're using it as an excuse not to be responsible. And they're young. They don't know the Lord yet. They're young. They're healthy. They're the prime of their life, and they think that they can change the world. But as time goes on, if they are one of God's children, they realize that their job is not to change the world. Our job is not to create the kingdom of God on earth. For them is already Satan's domain. Our job is to teach the good word. The hope and faith in Jesus Christ. That there really is an answer. It might not be a temporal answer. And it might not mean that we get dug out of the mess that we're in. And we've been placed in. But maybe the reason we're placed in the mess is really to learn how to put more faith in Jesus Christ. I know it's it's cliche, and I know it's annoying coming from me or pastors. But the reality is, it just might be the case because I see myself and I see so many others struggling so hard to dig themselves out of the mess that they've been put in, and it's not working. Why is that? Well, for one reason, it's because we live in a domain of Satan. And if you actually have any inclination of being the follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a hell of a time. That's guaranteed scripturally, and that's guaranteed the way the world works. If you see a man prospering and calling himself a follower of the way, the truth, and the life, you know right now he's a freaking liar. What do I mean by prosper? That means when they have the big house and the big car, and they have their church, they have a convenient job, they have uh, 
the means of this world to get as much out of this world. Fine example would be Rick Warren. My goodness me, what a Jesuit coadjutor that demon filled. creature is. How many of these men, have you noticed how many of them lose their sons? Amazingly end up suicidal. Being suicide or committing suicide. Do you really believe that's the case? I bet you anything is a trade-off. Because a lot of these people really are Luciferians and they really do believe in Satan. How could you not? Don't you know what the answer is in this world? Let's just see how many people learning about Mick Jagger and all these guys are top of the the heap, the dung heap of rock and roll, Christendom, or corporatism, or scientism. They're all sold their souls to devil at one time in their life. It could have been just a game, but they did it. And they're left with what they have. I know it sounds extremely simplistic, and it sounds extremely childish and naive, but really, if one really looks into it, one's going to realize that this, it truly is the case. That this, what we are battling is spiritual. And there's no magic to it. There's no uh, a magical prayer. There's no was Dizdar uh, seminar to go to that's going to fix any of this. In fact, what's going to happen is the complete opposite. We're supposed to be watchmen. We're supposed to expose the wickedness of this world, and we're supposed to put all our abiding faith in Jesus Christ. No day of the week matters. No, our works don't make a difference. Even being a watchman, exposing the wickedness and sharing the gospel doesn't save us one bit. Now, not in this world and not in the next. I see ominous things happening with this flat earth movement. I really do believe from my own experience that the earth is most likely flat. It really is flat. I believe it's flat. I know that agitates a lot of people and they argue and all that, but I don't disrespect that one bit, and I do understand. I spend a lot of hours researching it and remembering my past and seeing almost the entire skyline from three miles away. Chicago, 35 plus. 40! So, it doesn't math doesn't work. Regardless of what it is, it really doesn't matter, but I see this. This movement is going to be a big catalyst for a lot of problems. People are going to have to make a choice and things. They're going to really have to make a choice that the Word of God really is just that. Or they're going to get sucked up into madness chaos, they're going to be part of it. You're going to be part of it. You don't have a choice in the matter. They're going to make you choose. The rulers of evil are going to make you choose. 
can't stay neutral in this one. That's all coming together. See it happening before your eyes if you open up those eyes. It's all coming together. And the things of this world aren't going to be the answer. You know, having a year's supply of food storage and having a whole bunch of guns and uh, having a whole bunch of gold and worrying about the economic inevitable crash. Now, I would start thinking and contemplating a little bit of what it was like in Europe and Asia during World War II, World War One, the madness, the insanity, that's more likely it would be. That's what they want. That's what they desire. If you study what uh, Robert Pike says, whether the latter is true or not to Mazzini or not, certainly is coming true. When you look at the basic agenda, the Third World War, which we are in the beginning phases of, and this war is going to last a long freaking time. I plan on this war being at least a century long. It should tell you something. It's not worth worrying about at all. It's good knowing about it, though. And it's worth just simply saying, you know what? I'm in Babylon. I'm in a mad place with madmen running it, and things aren't going to change by way, men's ways. I'm going to make a choice. Is it going to be God? Or is the true and living God, the God of the Bible, what do you call Yahuwah or Yahweh or Yah, you know, the Bible? The God of the Bible, you know, the great I am that I am, the one who created this world and created you and etc. I created life, not the cheap imitation of machines and men. The true God. Are you going to believe in what He has to say? Are you really going to take it seriously when His commandments, like to love thy enemy, and thou shalt not kill and to love thy neighbor as thyself, and to love God with all your heart, mind, so I can take it seriously. I hope you do, but I don't believe that most of us will. It's too simplistic of an answer, and it's too childish, too weak. You mean, I can't change things? You mean, my will and my power will not change the way, the direction of this world? You mean, if we just don't... Stand up and expose the house of cards that we live in. I mean, if that won't change a thing, no, it won't change a thing. It hasn't for thousands of years. What do you mean? We, we're smarter now. We got the internet. <laughs> the internet interweb. World Wide Web, right? Yeah, we're smarter now. Yeah, we're really smarter now, aren't we? It's a good message, though. Weirdly enough, it's a wonderful message to know that there is a God and that there is a hope and that life is truly eternal and that 
It's not found in a church. It's not found in brick and mortar. It's not found in man's religion and then how it has just twisted the truth to enslave you to the priestcraft and to Satan himself. It's found in God and a personal relationship with him. It's a beautiful thing. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. At least in my life. It's a weird thing, too, because there's nothing like they told me. You see all these people, and they're train, praying 15 hours a day and just being really, quote-unquote, disciplined and mechanical, and really they're still just doing the same thing. It still works. It's just having abiding faith. It's an amazing thing, abiding faith, believing in Jesus Christ. Believe what he said. It's an amazing amount of peace you get when you really believe that regardless of what crap comes your way to realize that it's true that he's true and you know you don't have to be some whack job evangelical proselyting for God God doesn't need you to do that he's God Share the good news. Tell the truth of what's going on. Have fun doing it, weirdly enough. And just rest in him. And wherever it takes you, whatever you may gain or lose, wherever it may be, so what? It's only temporary. I know this sounds like it's like you're falling into the hands of the Illuminati or the Roman Empire or what the Masters wants. The authority, as the New Agers say. Mm-hmm. The authority. The authorities. You can get that one wrong. The authority is God, our Heavenly Father, the Godhead, His only begotten Son. The authority is there. It's not you, it's not I, it's not the priest, it's not... The deacons or the elders is not uh, whatever title it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. It's a weird trip, man. It's a wild journey. Anyways, this prophecy is great. I recommend listening to it. You guys will find him very interesting. Unfortunately, he stopped making videos and stopped doing his thing. I think, like so many others, this is a time period where many who have started this maybe opened the doors for the opportunity to share the truth. And you know, there's no real time when I have to stop this and move on. Or maybe it will be that I do it for the, until I die. I don't know. I have no way. I, I can't even understand why I am doing this. I struggle with it all the time. Am I just crazy? <laughs> am I nuts? Ron Paul will save us. That's funny. Yeah, Ron Paul will save us, sure. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Try it. Rest in peace in him. Don't make it a big ordeal. Yeah, I think if I, you see these people that praying for 15 hours, and they're praying for everything, and they're making this big production, and they're making... 
That's not the body of faith in Jesus Christ. That's a performance for him. Well, I mean, if I do it every day, everything will change. I'm not saying that praying does not make a difference in a man's life. Absolutely, it does. But whether you pray 30 seconds or 30 minutes, is no, it's the intent, it's the sincerity, it's the belief. I think the most important things to pray for are, please give me abiding faith in Jesus Christ and... Mercy. Give me mercy, God. Grant me mercy. And you're right, uh, Gordo, that uh, the rapture is an incredible insult to the Word of God. In the 2,000 years of all the people who have suffered under the hand of Rome in this satanic system, whether Christian or not, See, they made us as Americans really egotistical, thinking that we are the center of the universe, and really we're just a outpost of the Roman Empire. And they're reigning in, folks. They're reigning it in. Have peace in it. Be all right with it. Know the truth. The truth is, say, it will set you free. And what does it set you free from? The faith, your idolatry of the world, and what it has to offer. It is a dung heap, and it will not last. Well, however it turns out, well, however they light ablaze this place and everywhere else that they intend on, it makes really no difference because at the end of the day, it means nothing. Putting your faith in men, isn't that just incredibly insane? Yet we've been indoctrinated to do that all our lives. There's no way that my teacher lied to me. You know, you can still lie and not even realize you're doing that, right? You're perpetuating a, lie, perpetuating a lie, a deception. It's the blind leading the blind, remember? And that's what we're doing. People say, oh, we're waiting for that grand, that deception. The, the great falling away still hasn't happened yet. I'm going to tell you something. The great falling away has been with humanity for a very, very, very long time. I would think it'd be a very good idea to stop using the Bible as some kind of Ouija board, conjuring up what the future may hold. I would let it go. Just read the Bible for what it is. Learn your history. Show respect, as uh, Goral says here, to the Waldenses and the Albigenses and the Hussites and the Huguenots. And all the other folks, they don't even have a name. So some respect to God. It's amazing that for most of my uh, life, I wanted to be one of these people. And I had no idea about Laurel Canyon. They have told me about that. In the rock magazines, as they did, it completely went over my head because I was too busy wanting to be like my idols. <clears throat> Never said it was a bright guy. <laughs> Never said it was bright. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
think about it. We will read. We definitely will read more throughout the week of uh, weird scenes, and read more from. Uh, uh, what am I doing here? Okay, um, Dave's website, and um, we'll, we'll definitely finish up part four of this. Uh, the website, you know, the Center of, of Informed America. You find it at www.dave's web.cnchost.com. You can figure out, maybe you can figure out a way to purchase some of his books that maybe uh, somehow, if mercy God will allow it, and they can figure out his brother and his children figure out how to make sure the money gets to them. I don't know how it's going to go about. Maybe it's just right now it's Amazon purchasing as much of the books you had. Because you know what? could be that not too far in the near future you won't be able to find his books. Someone else will get in the way, so who knows. Also, Gore, we've got Gordon Comstock. He's got some good stuff there for you to help out. And uh, his compilation, I think it's still there. I haven't checked lately. Gordo, do you still have that going on? Uh, Comstock load, the Comstock load. Hopefully it's still there. I haven't checked it. I see there, but I don't know if it's. Find it. You stopped. Did you get rid of the collections? Um, don't tell me you got rid of it. Anyways, I can't find it. What the heck's going on? Probably just me. What happened to the Comstock? Uh, you, you, you say screw it, forget about it. Anyways, there's a lot of compilations here, and it's on thinkerbeebeaten.com that you could check out and figure out uh, maybe help support the website. I know there's a little bit of some, you know, funniness going on over there as far as trying to figure things out what's going to happen. But um, still, it's good things to find, worthy things to get a hold of. And uh, we'll see if Gordo's even listening. This point, maybe he fell asleep. <clears throat> yeah, I will put their rejected knowledge interviews up after the first of the year. Okay. Good. So, just to inform people, I, I think that's a really important part of the journey of coming to the Lord and really realizing how important it is to have abiding faith in Jesus Christ is the more and more you learn about the world's really about what's really about. I know the endless images out there that you know the fear porn and all the crap coming out of 
supposedly the evangelical churches and all these people who represent supposedly Jesus Christ, but just really know your history, really know what's going on. Be aware. Don't get involved in all the craziness. Don't get involved in all the predicting of the future. Just recognize what's right in front of you. Don't get involved in all the superstition that they want us to believe in. Very ruminist, isn't it? Superstition. Meteors. They're going to nuke us. The Nephilim. CERN. These are all superstitions that we focus on with no bearing of evidence to prove it. Nothing. But what we do know is, and we've been forewarned, that things are going to get bad. Whether it's in our lifetime or the next. Or the, the three generations, no, we don't know. We do know one thing is progressively going to get worse and worse and worse. Fewer and fewer people are going to actually believe in Jesus Christ. Few people are going to believe it's going to be as the days of Noah. And really, he wasn't talking about Nephilim. He was talking about the fact that people will be just getting on with life and not believing in him, but believing in themselves, believing in the institution, the empire. And so there was hardly any left. In fact, there was only one man left. There's no evidence that his children actually were believers, were there? Was there? I don't know. I could be wrong about that. I know there was eight, but my impression it is, from my understanding so far, is his abiding faith that saved them. But he, God chose Noah and allowed his children to come along on the ark to replenish and populate the earth. Which, by the way, if you look, it's overwhelming evidence that a catastrophic event happened on this place that we call Earth. I'm putting my money in the flood. I don't care what everybody else thinks anymore. Whether that sounds childish or ignorant. Because the truth of the matter is, it's the complaint opposite. And if anybody believes that we sent a probe to Mars or that we have real photograph of Saturn and that North Pole and the quote-unquote uh, the uh, pentagram or the hexagram, whatever it is, you know, you can make all that stuff very easily in a Hollywood stage. And your garage, for that matter. Time to let it go. We've been lied to about everything. And I mean everything. Except how to roast turkey. How to cook a hamburger. How to... um, time with their children and how to well, just be a decent person. Yep. It's fascinating. The more one is degreed, the higher one is degreed 
in the school system that's been at school how more delusional, how more lost they are. It's more tragic. Quite evil. Quite, um, it's quite. It's quite a wicked system that causes men and women to be indebted to receive a absolutely worthless piece of paper except for the right to go on their bus, to climb on their bus, and let them take you where they want to take you. Chase your whole life after a freaking talisman called a dollar bill. And we wonder why we're so exhausted. We're so burned out. Mind there's no other answer. really isn't. Sure, we could change the political system. We could change the banking system. We could change the religious system. We could change everything. But to whose liking is that going to be? What do you think the goal is with the New World Order? It actually is to change everything. <laughs> Amazing. Anyways, God bless you. Thank you, Gordo. Thank you for sharing the, the night. Uh, Errol C., thank you. Um, uh, Andrew, thank you. You folks have a... It's, it's Thanksgiving, and where I'm at, in Eastern Standard Time in Ohio, it is 1221. And uh, cool. I'm going to try to do the best I can to be thankful about things and uh, make the most of it. And even try to accept the fact that family don't think much of me. <laughs> we don't want anything to do with me, but they're just to tolerate me. Maybe I'll bring up a good book and read, you know what I mean? Maybe I'll just play for my son and sister's house, who knows? I'm sure I'll do both. I'm sure we'll be playing I'll be playing a lot with my son. So. God bless you all. Keep up the good fight. Remember what the answer is, is Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe in it, and if you're wrestling with it, then ask for mercy, ask for abiding faith. Because there's no more important things the man or woman could ever receive. Been a wild ride, Gordo. One of these days, you'll feel free, Gordo. I'd like to come back on the show and we'll have a Another show, we'll talk about something. But in the meantime, regardless, God bless you, brother. I love you. God bless everyone else. So, goodbye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.